say you don't get a second chance to make a first impression, well not to worry, Thailand nailed it. Welcome to Bike Live. Let's go! This is episode 82 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101 as we uh, look back on a fantastic inaugural Thailand Grand Prix uh, as MotoGP touched down in Buriram for the first time. Uh, we'll look back on another absolute classic between Mark Marquez and Andrea Di Vizioso, which went down to the very final corner of the final lap. Uh, once again, we'll talk all about that brilliant Grand Prix that we saw uh, at Buriram as the Yamahas returned to form. Uh, although even they don't quite know how they managed it. Uh, we'll look back on a uh, potentially season-defining weekend in Moto2 and Moto3 uh, as Francesco Bagnaia moved a step closer to the title, having led a Sky VR46 1-2, while Jorge Martin put injury beside him um, to move a step closer to the Moto3 title with a bit of help from Inea Bastianini. We'll explain more um, later on on a weekend where actually none of those riders actually won the Grand Prix in the end. Perhaps we might have a third title challenger in Moto3. We'll also bring you all the big news from this week as a Brit became a world champion for the third time um, over in Poland. Um, we saw a British uh, Grand Prix rider finally announce that he's moving to British shores on a permanent basis next season. Um, and we will cover the big news that broke literally today as we record this on Thursday, October the 11th, um, that World Superbikes are going to be adding a third race to each weekend uh, next season. Uh, we'll also look ahead to this weekend before we go because it is um, the first ever World Superbike Rounds to take place in Argentina at the new uh, circuit uh, in San Juan El Villacom. Uh, and it is the finale, the final round of the British Superbike season. Either Leon Haslam or Jake Dixon, in brackets, probably Leon, uh, will win the mm -hmm. British Superbike Championship this weekend. Uh, and we will cover all of that uh, at the end of this week's show. Uh, join me once again um, to look back on uh, a brilliant debut uh, MotoGP adding for Thailand uh, is Andre Harrison. Andre, welcome. Hi, guys. I'm taking time out of my busy church schedule to uh, hit up the Pokey Motorsport podcast to talk about a brilliant weekend of racing in Thailand. A, 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 as, as, Kit, as as Lewis mentioned in the in the intro, it was a uh, it, was, it was a wonderful first impression to have MotoGP in Thailand. It was a it was a great weekend, and we'll get into it right about now. But uh, yeah, a fantastic headlining race, a fantastic first race in in, uh, in Thailand, the perfect paddock cleanser for what was a Shall we say difficult Japanese Grand Prix for yours truly? Hmm. Difficult. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go with second. that. Um, <laughs> but uh, but before that, uh, the places you can find us, uh, starting on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at motorsport underscore 101. Um, and uh, do get involved with us on there because we would certainly like your input for the next episode of Motorsport 101 that's coming next week and the big news surrounding mm -hmm. women's motorsport that's been uh, breaking um, since we last recorded. Um, our YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Our website is motorsport101.com. Um, and if you like our podcast and our content so much that you'd like to back us financially, you can do so on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, we're backing us at the $5 level we earn you early access to both this show and to Motorsport 101. Backing us at the $10 level we earn you access to our Discord server and the chance to listen in live, uh, as several of you are doing right now, including uh, our former podcast host, Adam Johnson, Henry Chapman, uh, James Galantis as well, and our own Ryan King is listening as we speak as well um, at Oops. the moment. Um, and... Um, depending on which of those I'm referring to, they were either listening or recording themselves. Um, Motorsport 101, episode 164, earlier this week, which, uh, uh, as Dre mentioned, was a difficult one for him to record. 
uh, given well, the fact that, uh, as he referenced it on the podcast, uh, the Church of Dre, Sebastian Vettel's title hopes finally went six feet under Dre. <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. Um, yes, church is in session, and uh, new mega pastor Dre Harrison is in the house. Um, you didn't see I was wearing a white suit like Paul Sinner off the chase. It'd be yeah. great. Um, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it, it was the Church of Dre episode 164, it, it, which will be out by the time this goes out, um, reviewing what was, shall we say, a emotional Japanese Grand Prix for yours truly is Lewis Hamilton um, effectively put one hand and four fingers on the title um, with another dominant victory. Um, shout out to Seb for winning the Petty Olympics, not only um, by driving into the side of Max Verstappen's side pod, but also taking the Grand Slam away from him on the final lap. Well played, Sebastian. We love your work. Um, all of that, um, with all of that under review as well as all the rest of the news in racing, including a uh, pretty crazy bar first 1000. Um, where heat exhaustion was the order of the day. Who would have thought it? All of that on episode 164 of Motorsport 101. Uh, donations in the tip jar in the back. And uh, yeah, that'll be out by the time this goes out. Yeah, and uh, let's. Uh, well, we're going to move on in a moment to another uh, motorsport uh, event that kind of was characterized by heat exhaustion um, because it was absolutely mm. boiling hot in Thailand last weekend. But before that, well, congratulations are in order because we um, saw a Brit last weekend become a world champion once again, Ty Woffenden. Um, clinched his third Speedway Grand Prix World Championship. He went into the final round, to be honest, with one hand on the trophy. He only needed six or seven points in the final weekend uh, to clinch the championship in Torren. Uh, but clinch it, he did. So congratulations uh, to Ty Woffenden. Uh, seeing off the pole, Bartosz Smarzlik, uh, who, of course, was going into his home round, trying to become a world champion for the first time. But Ty Woffenden, having won the title in 2013 and 2015, um, has now added the 2018 title um, to that, although it didn't exactly have the easiest of, uh, of nights, he did what he had to do in the end um, to become mm -hmm. the champion. So congratulations to Ty Wolfden. He is now um, alongside uh, two former uh, world champions, Freddie Williams and Peter Craven, as Britain's most decorated Speedway world champion ever. Uh, so congratulations to Ty. Um, but yeah, let's, as mentioned, uh, head over to Buriram, where World Championships weren't crowned uh, or weren't decided over there, but we uh, now are a awful lot clearer to knowing who our three world champions are going to be um, in the MotoGP paddock um, this season. Um, a lot, though, went on in the MotoGP uh, weekend prior to the brilliant race that we got, though. So um, we'll cover these stories first. Um, first of all, Dre, before we actually reference the three races we got, Thailand mm. itself, um, it was its first... MotoGP weekend, of course, it has held um, motorcycle racing before with World Superbikes and, and Asia Talent Cup. It's it's held motorsport before, as um, as RJ O'Connell referenced on Motorsport 101 this week. It's it's held GT racing as well in the past. Mm -hmm. It's held TTR as well. Um, but this is its first time hosting MotoGP, which I'm I'm pretty certain, without wanting to level any sort of disrespectful uh, comments to any other motorsport series, I'm pretty sure this is probably what Thailand would see as its pinnacle. Um, oh yeah, as the biggest no, no. series it could host. Um, as a reference, right at the top, you only get one chance to make a first impression, and what a great impression Thailand made! Yeah, it absolutely did, and yeah, the, there's no there's no doubt about it. This would be the pinnacle for Thailand. A lot of the a lot of the Southeast Asian countries like they can't afford cars in their economy, so bikes are the order of the day. If anyone's ever seen the Top Gear Vietnam special, you get a good idea of that culture. But um, yeah, 
200,000 attendance for the weekend, like 80,000 on Saturday, 100,000 on race day. Um, and it, it was a wonderful weekend, like right from the start. I mean, I like that even Andrea De Vizioso after the race came out and said that, you know, it was a breath of fresh air to see, you know, not just a, a sea of yellow everywhere, but just fans of all the riders. It was, it looked a lot like an NFL London game where you just have fans of every team in the NFL all in the stadium, all just enjoying a, a, the fact we're getting a game of football at Wembley Stadium before they ran that gimmick into the ground. But uh, it, it sounds it's... awfully cliched, but I don't I think, I think it's the hmm. kind of country and the kind of fan base where they're not fans of a single rider. They're fans of the sport. Yeah, they're just happy to have a race. Like, I think, like, I don't mean to, to say that in a negative tone. It's a great thing. Like, they, 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 you could tell they were so happy just to have a race on home soil. I mean, World Superbikes is one thing, and I'm sure they were grateful for that. But this is the pinnacle. We know this is the big cheese. And, you know, like, like we saw it from a PR standpoint earlier in the weekend when Mark Marquez was out there in Bangkok, um, out there in his bike in full racing levers in 35-degree heat and, 80, and I think it was like 88% humidity out there. And, you know, he was riding a tuk-tuk. He was mingling with the fans, signing everything for the kids. And you could tell this is like this. This, this could be Marquez land in the future because my God, the, like there was a lot of orange out there this weekend, and it showed. And Marquez being a total showman on on the podium, pulled out the white rose with their national flower, which is very a very very snazzy touch from MN ninety three. But yeah, you could tell that they they were just really happy just to have a race on home soil. They all appreciated it. And for me, it was a breath of fresh air. I mean. Like we all know, MotoGP's foundations are based in Europe. We all know that, you know, having three, you know four races in Spain, and not too long ago they had three races in the United. You can see the backbone of their calendar. And in recent years, it has been dominated by you know the European riders, specifically Valentino, and it's the negative connotations that often come of that: the booze on the podium, the you know the toxicity you get in the press and in the media. Sometimes this was different; like it was just everybody was just happy. It was just a, a it was, they got a fantastic show. They had a fantastic exhibition with the best riders in the world. All of you know the three uh, three of the four best riders on the planet were in that leading group, in my opinion, when the race happened, and like everyone was just happy to be there and happy to see it. And it, it, for me, it was refreshing to see everyone just having a good time and enjoying it and just being really grateful to have the for me the best racing series on the planet right now touch down in time you could see how much they appreciated it and it was it was really refreshing to see that on yeah, tv it's a circuit i think that's just laid out brilliantly mm. as well in, in every respect not just the uh the brilliant podium sort of setup we have there i mean it's unusual at most circuits around the world to have a podium almost on its own in the middle of nowhere opposite the the main grandstand you'd have or opposite the mm -hmm. pit lane should i say the uh the sort of podium is usually interspersed with the paddock and the pit lane itself but Boram have done things slightly differently where the actual main grandstand is above the pit lane um which, yes. which i think is a great touch so basically if you pay money to go sit in those main grandstands and i'm not saying that this is necessarily in this grandstand but as keith Yoon was saying who spends a lot of his time living in thailand you could get tickets for the thai grand prix last weekend on the sunday for the equivalent in the uk of 10 quid um, because oh, come of, on, which which is brilliant. Obviously, it's the the economy is very different in those two countries. But of course, but um, but yeah, the point stands that you could get tickets for very uh, very little money over there. Um, and 
to have the, the main grandstand where it was literally overlooking part Fermi and overlooking the pit lane was brilliant. Um, and obviously, it was directly opposite the, the podium as well. So they got a good view of that. And Mark Marquez with a great touch um, with the white rose on the podium. Um, oh, yeah, very After good. the race as well. He certainly, uh, he's very, very savvy in that respect. Um, but if you, uh, and as King just like, referenced on the Discord, if, you, if you're in that main grandstand, you get a main, a good view of just about all of the track as well, without the way the track is Absolutely. laid out. But the actual... Mm-hmm layout of the corners are terrific in that it's it's got a bit of everything it's got it's some people have referenced it as a circuit of two halves where the first half of the track is largely straights and big braking zones um and, and to a certain extent it is which would lead you to think that it's a ducati circuit but then the second half of the track is is fast and flowing um uh, a lot of corners so it's it's a circuit as i say it's got a bit of everything so it doesn't necessarily suit one bike over any other um but equally it's got a great final corner uh, now, I know that will hit a little close to home when we get to Moto3. Um, but it, it, if, you're, if you're after a close race and you're after last corner action and a race for the victory that goes right the way down to the very last meter of the racetrack, it's the perfect final corner in that it's got some fast-flowing corners that allow the bikes to follow each other closely leading up to that corner and you get a good slingshot on the rider in front of you. It's a huge braking stop into the final corner and the final yep. and the finish line is right on the other side of the corner. So you <laughs> exactly. can, if you get up the inside of someone and you make that move stick, you win the race um, mm-hmm. rather than getting slipstreamed down the next straight into the finish line again that you would get, for instance, places like Mugello where you know if you don't get a good run out of the final corner, you're screwed. Um, in in Boyeram, mm-hmm. it, it, it just... It entices you into making that move, and it it gives you that reward on that final lap. If you make that bold move and make it stick, the reward is yeah. there for you because the final, the finish line and the checker flag is about forty yards after the corner, um, which makes it a, a brilliant spectacle at the end of races. And and that's what we got in MotoGP. Unfortunately, it didn't involve Jorge Lorenzo, um, who went to the weekend already injured after that um, well documented crash at the start of the Aragon Grand Prix, uh, which he still blames Mark Marquez for but we did we digress um he had another crash on Friday afternoon uh, in Boroughram and this one was certainly not Jorge Lorenzo's fault because his Ducati seized up uh under braking for turn three the heavy uh hairpin at the end of the back straight out of turn one um it was a horrendous accident an accident that he could have done mm. absolutely nothing about um given that by the time the bike seized up of course he's not exactly He's not got his finger over the clutch really to do anything about it because he's not expecting that kind of incident to happen. Uh, and it just it just popped him over the handlebars and a very heavy high side, a very heavy fall, Dre. And uh, a real shame for Jorge Lorenzo to, to miss the Grand Prix and a real shame the way his season has kind of unraveled a little bit. I mean, that's what, uh, four races in a row now that he's, he's not scored points um, for a variety of reasons, yeah. be it either races being cancelled or crashes late in races or crashes before races even start but a real shame the way Jorge Lorenzo's final races with Ducati aren't really getting off the ground just for for injuries to prevent him from even starting the race that that's that's no way for Jorge Lorenzo's time at Ducati to sort of wind its way down yeah it's 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 a somber ending to what's been a frustrating I think is the best way to describe it I think a frustrating uh two years um within the team um for lorenzo and yeah this was a a, a bizarre high side in, in fp2 it's uh, it's like a, we're recording this on october 11th five days after the race and i don't think ducati has come out and said you know what exactly happened and you know what caused you know lorenzo's engine to seemingly cut out and cause that hellacious high side you could hear it on the onboard couldn't you 
Yeah, you get it remember that the engine just cuts out, and next yeah. thing you know, yeah, and next thing Lorenzo's got over the handlebars. It, it, it was a bizarre, bizarre incident, and yeah, it was a nasty one. Lorenzo was already coming into the weekend touch and go with that, with the damaged toe he had. It meant the metatarsal he had, uh, David Beckhamed. In uh, in Aragon, so to speak, and then he was touching. He was declared fit, obviously, to ride on, on to ride on Thursday, to ride on Friday, and then, yeah, he basically pulled out of the weekend after FP2 because he didn't want to risk further damage. He'd already, I think, you know, he bruised his wrist quite badly. Luckily, yeah, no fractures. Uh, he, he has got a fracture of the radius on, on his left arm, a, a hairline fracture. Mm. But uh, but but yeah, as you say, he'd already he, he'd already got the injuries that he was carrying into the weekend, and he didn't look particularly comfortable anyway. Um, mm-hmm. On uh, on Friday morning or Friday afternoon before the accident, but 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 yeah, it was it was one of those where the the benefits of him actually taking part in the rest of the weekend, you know, the, the negatives outweigh the positives, especially mm-hmm. when you've got these three races in back to back weekends that we're going to have starting next weekend in Japan, at Bategi with Phillip Island the week after that, and then Sepang the week after that. Um, any injury at this time of the season could potentially, you know, we might not see you again until Valencia. So now is the time. Um, to make sure you're fully fit. Um, and, and yeah, as you say, I'm just sort of scanning through um, Ducati press releases to try and um, find some sort of explanation of what happened. And even their press release that took that they put out on the Friday um, simply says, he unfortunately crashed out again with a high side at turn three. That's all it says. Um, it, it doesn't actually reference what went on. I mean, Jorge Lorenzo says himself that um, he was surprised by the fact that the rear wheel went away suddenly and he crashed so violently um, but, but as we said, you could hear it on the on the onboard footage. You could hear something, you know, go wrong with his bike. You could hear it almost just stop running um, as he was trying to, you know, back it into the corner. Um, it just seemed to lock on him, um, which was which was just a horrible accident. As I mentioned, he was not exactly even when you know the back end stepping out. You can sometimes prepare yourself for something going wrong, but he said he wasn't preparing himself for something like that. Um, right, and it, and it just fired him through the air, and it was a horrendous way for his weekend um, to come to an end. Um, the drama continued into Friday, uh, into Saturday morning, should I say, because Mark Marquez had a crash of his own in uh, free practice three right at the end of the session, which actually meant he had to go through qualifying one, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is unusual for Mark Marquez. I think he had to do that at Mugello this year from memory, um, uh, Mark Marquez, did, yes. um, because he didn't have the greatest of weekends there. Um, but but yeah, it was. It was a strange Saturday morning, and it was an incredible end to free practice three because the field was so close. Mark Marquez was actually second in, in combined practice uh, times with about four minutes to go uh, at free practice three. He got out there for one-time lap, crashed on that one-time lap, and before he knew it, he was 11th when uh, I had to go through qualifying one. Didn't inconvenience him too much because he got out of Q1 and then put it on pole um, in, in Q2 by 11 thousandths of a second um, from Valentino Rossi. It was a brilliant Q2 um, as Marquez, Rossi, and Davizioso uh, went to battle for pole position. And that was kind of the race that we got on the Sunday, Dre. It was those three yeah. joined by um, notable others. Maverick Vinales, of course, joined them towards the end of the race. We had a huge leading group early on in the race as well. Um, and, and it's funny because it, it kind of leads me into a point that could extend to Formula 1 as well, where when you have tyres that are marginal, shall we say, in terms of their, their life yeah. to get to the end of a race or to get to... Uh, to get far into a race and forces riders to, you know, manage them through a race. I know people hate the term tyre management, um, but certainly mm. in MotoGP, where you can't hear what you can hear in Formula 1, where we hear drivers being told on the radio to go slowly or drivers 
saying that they're happy to look after their tyres, which I know the fans of Formula 1 cannot stand. Um, right. But in MotoGP, when we don't hear that, and when we know that it's building towards crescendo at the end of the race, I think tyre management in MotoGP, from what we've seen this season, I think it lends itself to great racing. I think it does too. Um, I remember David Emmett from Moto put up a, a screenshot of uh, some of the race results from back in the, the back in the dark dark ages of 2009 and it was a dark time there was only 17 full-time runners um and it was a time, was where, time where bridgestone and michelin were uh, going head to head in indeed and this was a time where if one manufacturer was on top they would win and often by several seconds it was the era when Pedrosa could win a race by 13 seconds it could be the sort of time where you know valentino can win a race by nine seconds and you know barely have to bat an eyelid it was that sort of time and it was the time when you know rossi was so concerned by how strong bridgestone tires were that he changed from michelin to bridgestones within his own team we had two moveside yamaha riders one on michelin's one on bridgestones it was a funny time in murder gp back then but uh yeah you're you're right like this it, it, that was crazy how that was happening and the funny thing is is that now I mean, I know Keith Ewan's mentioned it before on commentary where he's mentioned, you know, oh, you know, like tire management is terrible. You want to see these riders go flat oh, out yeah, the entire race. Yeah, so much faster. The number of times Neil Hodgson references in a race how the guy in 13th is going as fast as the leaders. And, and, I, and I, I get that point. I totally understand that point. I, I, mm. I, it's, I know you've referenced it from one of this, this placebo effect that people want to feel sort of... Yeah. Um, they want to feel as if they're watching the guys in front of their eyes going absolutely flat out. But I really don't get the appeal of that. If if, if it means that the field is getting spread out, then what are you gaining from that? But I, think, I know it's not necessarily the same in Formula 1 because you don't get the feeling, no. even if people are managing their tyres, you don't get the feeling that it's going to build towards this naturally exciting conclusion because exactly um, there's no guarantee of overtaking for a start. And also there's no guarantee that... Um, the field is going to stay close together, even if they are managing their tyres. Because when they're managing their tyres, it t- tends to mean they back off from the guy in front and there's a gap between them. Um, mm-hmm. But in, in MotoGP, I was happy to sit through those first 10, 12 laps, which weren't exactly dogs. We had changes of the lead and we had riders sort of making progress up through the leading group. But I was thinking to myself, first of all, by watching on TV, you cannot notice through the naked eye that they're going a second a lap slower than they could. Um, right. but, but also, you just knew that at any moment, particularly in that second half of the race, it was going to get good. Exactly. And that's how it's been in MotoGP for the last two or three rounds now, where, like, Aragon was the same deal. You knew it was going to lead to a frantic finale, and that's what we got. Marquez played the tyre game perfectly. Bruno, broke off even... Yeah, broke two, broke with two laps to go, and we got a crescendo finish. Same in Bruno. Same here, where it built up, and you know they're going to go for it. You know someone's going to pull the pin with about three laps to go and try and break off and win, and that's what Marquez did in Aragon with two to go, and he won that race. And what was interesting about it was seeing the strategy play out, seeing how these riders think, and and seeing how they're all going to play off each other. It's like, for the next thing you know, I'll have a nowhere as the fastest lap of the race has been set because someone wants to... Someone wants to take control of the race. We saw Valentino Rossi led the early going, but then deliberately backed off and dropped down to third because he wanted to see what Dovi or Marquez could do from the front, and that's what made it interesting. Um, and like I said, with with MotoGP and the key difference between that and Formula One is Formula One, 
it's just tire management. We saw it in Singapore, like for example, where they were going three or four seconds a lap slower at one point just to keep track position. And then next thing you know, Hamilton sets a fastest lap that was two seconds quicker. I was like, well, what the hell's going on here then? Um, and it, we didn't get any sort of dramatic effect with, with Hamilton doing that. It was just tire management. Yeah, tire management. No payoff at the end of it. No. In MotoGP, you know there will be a payoff. And that's what made the entire race more intriguing. There was a purpose to the tire management. There was You knew there was going to be an end game, a payoff, a finale. And that's exactly what we got here. So when you know that's going to happen, it makes the tire management phase of the race more interesting. It makes it less boring because you know it's building up to something, um, like, like any naturally good story. So, yeah, I, I don't like. I, I get why people can often be frustrated with you know the concept of tire management and how it can play into you know a race not being exciting and again that placebo effect i've always mentioned about feeling like the drivers have got to push because it makes them feel better about what they're watching but it made for a better moto gp race on this occasion and if you haven't seen it yet go find the video on moto gp's twitter page of dovi and marquez in in the golf cart heading towards the podium talking about the race and you can see it adds a lot of context into how that race played out if you have not seen it already including being on the limit how they the tires and how they were going away and it was literally a disadvantage on the front tire to run directly behind another bike what dovi said himself he was struggling when he was running his front in, you know behind valentino rossi when he was leading the race so it made it all very interesting and it adds, an, it adds an extra layer of context to the situation. And hey, I don't think anyone's going to look back on that race now and go, oh, those first 12 laps are terrible. Look at all that tire management. Um, so I, I, I'd be careful before reading too much into that, Keith. Um, yeah. yeah, it was. It was it was a terrific race in the end, the way it built up. And just there were moments through the race, as, as you mentioned, where you saw that leading group evolve where you saw Davizioso suddenly up the pace when he got to the front. Um, and you saw that leading group stretch out where you quickly realized who the guys with the real pace were because only mm. Marquez and the two Yamahas were able to go with him. Crutchlow suddenly fell back through the leading group once the pace got ramped up. Um, yep. And you'd see Dobby slow it back down again. Um, it, it was a fascinating sort of game of cat and mouse at the front, but we still had the action within it where we had obviously Valentino led at one point, which I'm, Pretty sure is one of the first times. I think it's the only. I can't think of one of the race this season where he has actually led it um, at any stage, um, and that was back in Aston. Other than that, I don't think Valentino Rossi's actually led a Grand Prix this year. Um, we saw uh, just a brilliant, brilliant race, and in the end, as with a lot of the great races we've seen in MotoGP Dre over the last eighteen months, it's come down to Davizioso uh, and Mark Marquez, and we're so lucky that only most GP now I know it's not necessarily a close rivalry for the championship any, anymore no. based on what happened to Davizioso at the start of the year but we're very lucky at the moment how we've got the two best riders in the world at the moment certainly the two best in MotoGP in Mark Marquez and Andre Davizioso who just about any time the two go wheel to wheel we're pretty much guaranteed a classic and we're guaranteed a classic right. between two riders who race on the edge who put everything on the line as we saw at the very last corner but race with respect Absolutely, and that's the key thing. We've had four last corner showdowns between Marquez and Dovi in the last season and three quarters. And that's the great thing about their rivalry. All four of these last corner incidents have not been incidents. They have been clean, hard racing. That's exactly what we as fans want to see. There's been no controversy there. There's been no 
bitterness or hard feelings. It's just been two guys at the absolute peak of their powers fighting head-to-head and leaving everything on the line, but not stepping over that line and, you know, resounding those feelings of bitterness or over-aggression. They have been clean, fair, and, and hard racing, and you can't argue with that. And it and it was a brilliant, brilliant dogfight between the two of them. Yet again, it was really, with with, with two laps to go, if we noticed that, you know, it, it was going to be between Marquez and Dovi. Shout out to Maverick Vignano, who had the best seat in the house for that. Um, you thought the long he couldn't quite get close enough to make a move on anybody. I think he was just sitting there more out of hope than expectation um, between between the two of them. And you know, Marquez had tried a couple of moves um, for like through turn eight breaking zone. He, again, like he he tried a, a a last corner lunge that didn't quite work out. Um, it was a fantastic race. It was a fantastic fight between those two. And I also like, and this is going to be like video documentary stuff in in the future one day, but. How wonderfully poetic was the final corner of the last lap where Marquez had passed into turn eight this time. So Marquez had learned his lesson from last season that he, you know, he wants to be leading going in, going into the final corner. He was leading. Dovi had got a a solid run heading towards the final corner. It's a, it's, it's, it's late as you dare breaking. So you think it's Dovi's game because Dovi's riding style has always been, you know, last of the late breakers, into a first corner, into a first, last corner, first gear hairpin. And Marquez sort of blocks the inside line a little bit, but Dovi still comes down anyway. He overcooks the apex this time. Marquez comes back and Marquez wins uh, to make it three to one in the in the scoreboard of last corner showdowns. And uh, Marquez even had, had the cheek to stop popping the wheelie before he'd even crossed the finish line. But, uh, yeah, Marquez win number seven of the season. And, uh, yeah, a, a, a tremendous fight between those two. Like, without a doubt, those two are the best two bike riders on the planet right now, bar none. It's it's un, it's undisputable at this point for me that uh, they are the very best. And long may, they, long may these dogfights continue because they are not getting old anytime soon. No, they're not. And it, it, it was great, as you say, the way the sort of the tactics unfolded through that race because... Marquez initially hits the front, um, you know, with a move going on to, um, well, actually tries to hit the front before the penultimate lap because he he has a couple of test runs. He has a go into the hairpin at the end of the back straight into turn three, uh, which Dovi is wise to and just ducks back underneath him and goes through. Then going on to the penultimate lap, having seen Marquez take him at turn eight, as Dre referenced, uh, Dovi then goes up the inside and drills Marquez into the final corner and gets to the finish mm. line ahead of him, which was crucial. And I was I was watching that race thinking. If you mark Marquez, you've got to be asking yourself, how do I beat this guy? What what do I have to do in a straight fight to beat Davizioso? Because mm. he, he tried to move into the final corner, it hadn't worked. Um, you know, Dobby was wise to that. Then he'd managed to find a place elsewhere around the circuit to go through, but that just gave Dovi the slingshot on him going into the final corner where Dovi was able to overtake him again into that mm-hmm. final corner and make it stick. So Marquez, going into that final lap, had to try and invent something else. Um, and he essentially did the move that Johnny Ray did on Tom Sykes in 2016, that great race we mentioned in World Superbikes, which actually didn't work yes. for Ray that day, where um, going into the second of the big stops into turn four, the faster left-hander, so it's not as quite as big a stop as the one before it, he follows Davizioso through there and then just sends it up the inside into turn five, uh, which isn't really an overtaking spot. They've both got their foot down on the, on the time. They're both on the absolute limit, but it gives Mark Marquez a slightly 
greater distance between that and the final quarter to try and pull out an advantage. Um, yeah. Because I think he knows that if he essentially, if he goes through that penultimate corner with Davizioso right on his rear wheel, he's got no chance going to that final corner. Um, Indeed. But he's, he's just got enough of a lead where Davizioso's got to come from slightly further back um, and break just that little bit later going to that final corner to get up the inside of him. Um, and what really typified it, Dre, just how far, they are, how hard they were pushing and how close to the limit they were, the super slow-mo and the shapes the two bikes are making um, going yeah. to that final corner. They are uh, absolutely 99% of the limit. Davizioso's bike is pointing in a direction that it should not be pointing at. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's basically corner. sideways. He's, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's pointing pretty much to the left. He's breaking for a right-hander. Um, and obviously Marquez is absolutely on the limit too. Um, just a brilliant showcase uh, of MotoGP racing uh, going to that final corner. Um, again, as I've referenced before, it kind of makes you wish that Davizioso and Ducati had started the season slightly stronger than they did uh, and that they hadn't exactly. made those mistakes early on because what a championship we'd be building up to uh, in these closing rounds of the season. Mm-hmm. As it is, um, that's Mark Marquez's seventh win of the season. Um, as it is, he's now on the verge of winning the world title, which would be uh, his seventh world title um, and his fifth in MotoGP. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary run that he's on. It's not exactly, although he's dominating the history books in terms of how many championships he's winning, he's not exactly dominating every season and winning races easily. He's winning some very, very close races here. Um, yeah, exactly. But um, but it's an extraordinary run that Mark Marquez is on. And he's now in a position where if he finishes ahead of Andrea De Vizioso in Mategi next weekend, he wins the title. And then the questions once again of just how great this guy is will... Uh, will come up once again. He is, I think even at this stage, isn't he, He's already in, certainly in the top five of all time in MotoGP, maybe even slightly less than that. I've I've been asked this on Curious Cat over the last week, and and I think he could be as high as third. I mean, right now, who would be in between him and the big two of Agostini and Valentino? I, I mean, Marquez is spectacular. He just, like, he is the most spectacular talent I think I've ever seen in motorsport in that he just does shit that no one else can do. It is ridiculous. And and he is such a unique talent. He 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 moves the needle in places that Valentino Rossi can't. And this was his 60th pole position in all competitions. This was... He, he tied with Jorge Lorenzo for fifth on the all-time wins list. That was his 68th Grand Prix victory, and I think it's 43rd in the top flight yeah, already. Yeah, had a six-year start on him. Yeah, like he, he overtook Danny Pedrosa some time ago. Pedrosa debuted seven years earlier. It's just not fair at this point. He is going to... He, he could end up with 100 wins before he's like 29. Like That would be terrifying. Like For me, he's one of the greatest that we have ever seen. We are very, very lucky to not only have an all-time generational talent in Marquez at the front of the field, but we also have a guy who is every bit as good as him on track at the same time in Andrea Davizioso. Yeah, and as King points out in the, in the Discord, shit, I forgot he's 25. Yes, he's not 26 till February, Marquez. He still has another 10 years of this if he wants it. Um, but... Like I said, we are very, very fortunate to have a very, very special talent in Mark Marquez, but also to have a rider that is every bit the measure of him on track in a head-to-head dogfight, and that's Andrea Davizioso. And he has been like 
the Marquez repellent over the last year and a half. And despite, again, as you say, this would have been such a heated championship you know, crescendo if Dovi hadn't had those free crashes at the start of the year. Um, because Marquez is probably going to wrap it up by Phillip Island, maybe even next weekend at Mategi if he wins that one too. Um, so, you know, it's... It's it's crazy, but the sport is in a is in a very very good place with those two at the front of it. And as I said on Twitter during during that uh, the the carriage video back to the podium, we are very lucky to have these two, and may they continue to forge their own dynasty because they are the two best riders on the planet. And and Marquez is just a a shade better right now, and it really is that because as you say, yeah, I, and I think, I want to give a shout out to Kevin Walsh who put this out there on Twitter after the race. Like, both in the two major championships right now, Marquez is, you know, 77 points ahead of, you know, of Andre Livizioso in the same way that, you know, in Formula 1, Lewis Hamilton's now 67 points clear of Sebastian. And how we deal with that dominance, you know, you, know you, you compare the dominance of Hamilton where all the life's been sucked out of this title fight now, compared to MotoGP, we don't, we, we don't really care because the races have been so good. And it says a lot about the state of F1's current product, if, if that's the mentality that we're going into, even though both titles have been wrapped up and, and have been for quite some time. Shout out to me, the guy that had 50 quid on Marquez and, and, and Hamilton as a championship double this year. Go me. Praise Dre. Um <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, I'm lucky. I was looking back at the championship standings at the time of Vizioso's last big mistake, which was in Barcelona this year when he crashed out of what would have probably been, um, what, third or fourth? He'd probably, probably been third there ahead of Rossi uh, on mm. that day. And at that point, Andrea Vizioso was eighth in the championship and he was already 59 points behind um, Marc Marquez. Um, so he's, he, you know, that just shows you just where the damage was done for Vizioso's season. Mm. He was already playing some serious catch-up by race seven, um, of the yeah. season and we're at race 15 now um, in the championship and, and since the summer break obviously we've already referenced how strong Ducati have been since the summer break where obviously until Aragon they haven't been beaten uh, but Andrea Vizioso hasn't been off the podium since the summer break since Bruno he's gone first third first second second uh, whereas yeah. Marquez has gone third second second first first they have been two of the three riders on every podium since the summer break um, with mm-hmm. one of either Lorenzo or, or Andrea Iadone, in the case of Aragon, um, joining them up there. Um, and it, we've had Carl Crutchlow up there as well, but they have been the two standard bearers of MotoGP pretty much since the summer break. Pretty much, if you discount Davizioso's errors in earlier in the season, they've been the standard bearers since the start of last year uh, in MotoGP. And, 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 and whilst we do heap praise, quite rightly, on Marc Marquez, we, we have to heap praise as well on Dobby Dre, because... He essentially yes. is the guy that is bringing this. He's bringing this out of Mark Marquez. As you say, in every great sport, every great rider needs a great adversary, I suppose. And you know, Mark Marquez is having to go to levels that perhaps he didn't think he has, and he's been driven there by the brilliance of Ducati and by Dovi. No, quite right. Like Ducati, we say it. I don't know. I still stand by this. I think they have the best bike in the field right now, and, I, and, they, and they certainly have for me, the best team in the field right now with him and Lorenzo. And Lorenzo's been the only other guy that, you know, has been able to be a, a consistent fawn um, in Marquez's side. But I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right in that, you know, Dovi may not be the best qualifier in the world, but it doesn't matter because he always brings it on race day. And he is a Sunday man. He, he is as fast as anybody we've seen in MotoGP in the last two or three years. He is... 
like he's the anti-venom to Marquez if you feel that way about him and you know he he has been the only guy in the last two seasons to have Marquez's number um and that's forced Marquez to be a smarter more intelligent rider in order to beat him and and yeah like it's, like and it's, it's made a difference this year. I mean, Marquez has had seven wins this year to Dovi's three when last year Dovi had more wins than he did, if I remember. They both had six each, actually, last season. So, yeah, yeah, and look, Marquez is still finding ways to be even better as a bike rider now. Like, Marquez is just the complete motorcycle racer. Like, where now, not only has Marquez still got that terrifying speed and that limit-breaking ability, um... I'm surprised he hasn't got ridiculously long golden hair like he's gone Super Saiyan 3 or something. But like it's one of those things where he's just got that all-round just brilliant game. But not only that, he's become a more intelligent rider. He's become a guy that can look after his tyres. He can strategize, And I think Thailand was the perfect metaphor for that because think about it. Marquez tried his usual trick. He tried to get away from the field. He couldn't do that. He tried to pass at the final corner like he's done before in the past. Couldn't do that. He had to. He had to break. He had to break the limits of the track again, like a turn eight. He had to make turn eight his spot on penultimate lap. He tried it, ran a little bit wide. Dovi was back in front. He recognised. He recognised yeah. that he had to go into that mm. final corner ahead of Dovi rather than behind him. Exactly. So he found another way to get around him. Tried it on the penultimate lap. Didn't get it. Tried it again on the final lap, but the second time round he nailed it, and that was the difference maker. Like, and that was able to for him to finally get one over on the final corner on Dovi, who had beaten him three times prior. With all three of those occasions, what, what was the situation going in? Dovi leading into the final corner and Marquez overcooking it on the brakes. And yeah, Marquez is like a learning computer. He's he's, he's found another way. The last two rounds, you can make the case he's done that to Dovi, or he's beaten Dovi at his own game. He tr- the last corner being a head trick didn't work for Dovi this time. And in the tyre strategy war we had at Aragon, Marcus had another, had another tenth and a half in his back pocket when he needed it most. And, like, we're not getting this because Marquez is coasting. We're getting this because Dovi is pushing Marquez to to be a better bike rider. And Dovi is still the second best rider on the planet right now. And there really is no shame in that, given how well he's riding the bike right now. Mm. So they bring the best out of each other. And that is that is the true sign of a brilliant rivalry, where you see the differences, you see the intangibles, and you see that Dovi and Marquez are bringing the best out of each other. It's fantastic to watch. They are. And it was uh, a cool stat about last weekend's uh, Grand Prix as brought by MCN. Uh, it was the fourth closest top three, fourth closest rostrum in MotoGP history. Uh, last wow. weekend, just uh, 0.270 of a second covered the top three over the line. Um, and the top four would have been even uh, just about as close as that had Rossi not overshot the final corner, trying not to run into mm. his teammate. Um, at that last corner. Um, it, it, and as I say, we have to thank Yamaha for that, I suppose, for uh, making it a four way mm. fight at the front end. How do we even begin to explain this, Dre? I mean, Yamaha were absolutely nowhere at Aragon uh, two weeks prior. They were absolutely nowhere at the Buriram test before the season started. Um, you know, they this it was, at the, it was at the Thailand test, really, that we really began to appreciate just how much of a hole Yamaha were in um, going into this season <laughs> because they were nowhere there. Um, yet they turn up this weekend with limited expectations. They were one and two in free practice one, uh, which straight away yeah. made us all sit up and think, hang on, what's going on there? 
Um, but then yeah. we sort of tempered that by thinking, well, they both stuck a new tyre in at the end of the session and went quickest. Yeah. Um, Rossi then is within 11 thousandths of taking pole position um, at a circuit that, as he told us all at the start of the year, he wasn't looking forward to going to. And then right. they finished third and fourth within a second of winning their first race of the season. It, mm. it makes very little sense. And as I said right at the top, I'm not sure Yamaha even know how they were so quick. Indeed, I think it's why David Emmett was saying that, you know, it, it could boil down to Bategi ne- like next weekend as like the true sign. Has Yamaha found something or was it just the nature of Buriram as a track that brought them into play? Um, he described it as the Goldilocks bike Yamaha now, where it's like it, it, it has a very, very narrow operating window where if it works, it works beautifully. If it doesn't work, you're going to know about it um, because there were... Yeah, going to be Q1 and down the order like we saw at Aragon where, you know, Rossi had to fight for every point he could get to just to crack the top eight and Maverick was running out of the points at one at, at one stage. Um, so, yeah, it looks like the track seemingly brought Yamaha into play. The temperature was just right for them to perform in their optimum. And again, it's a nice reminder that Yamaha are performing and... It, it's crazy to suggest they've now gone 24 races since their last victory, which is their longest dry spell ever. Um, but they are riding. I mean, that was an excellent performance, especially from Maverick, who you know who really did need this weekend. Um, just to remind everybody that when the block, yeah, geez, first podium since Assen, and you know the frustration had been has been more than you know publicised on numerous occasions between Vinales, Yamaha, True Chief, etc. It goes on, but it's a nice reminder that and I, and it, it proves my theory correct that I mentioned before. When Yamaha is performing, Maverick seems to have half a shade on Valentino, but Valentino's Valentino's floor is higher, but Maverick's ceiling is higher by the looks of it um, between the two of them. But yeah, a, a, a great performance from both Yamahas, and again, a nice reminder of what they can do when the circumstances are right. I just need to make that a more consistent thing. And if we did, I mean, could you imagine a consistent basis of the both, both Yamahas, both, you know, both Ducatis and a Honda team next year of, of Marquez and Lorenzo up there? Oh, Lord. Yeah. Scary it, 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 stuff. It's a mouthwatering prospect. And, uh, yeah, I think a lot of a lot of Yamaha's uh, gain, I think, that they made at the weekend was probably down to, as you mentioned, the, the circuit and the temperature of it, but also the tyres mm-hmm. and... Um, Colin Edwards was one of the first to pick up on it, how that Yamaha just seemed to come alive when they, they put the harder tyre on it. Um, yeah. Whenever they run the hard front, hard rear uh, Michelin on that Yamaha, it seemed to come alive. Uh, whenever those were the conditions, they seemed to be right up there. Like, they were they were up there in free practice one. They were then right up the front in free practice four as well, um, where, with Vinales and Rossi. They were up the front in that session. And the fact that it was so hot um, on the Sunday and... Everyone knew it was going to be a race of attrition and a race of tyre conservation, which forced everyone um, down into the route of running the harder tyre. Just played into Yamaha's hands beautifully because that was the tyre mm-hmm. they felt most comfortable on. Um, and everyone, as I say, had to pretty much go down that route, unless you're Alicia Spargo, who was a madman and ran the soft rear tyre. Um, just because he yeah, can. Just because he just because he thought, sod it, I'm on an Aprilia. Um, you know, unless you were him, you were, you were having to run that harder tyre and it basically forced everyone down the route that the Yamahas were happiest in. Um, and, mm-hmm. and it played into the hands beautifully. And as you say, Dre, it was um, it was Marit Vinales that came out on top between the two Yamahas, and his he seemed to thrive once the bike came alive. So did he. Um, but it is a result that he needed just for his own psyche. And um, as you say, it yeah. just reminds us that 
when the, the circumstances are correct, there's still a world-class rider in there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, like I said before, Maverick, when the bike is standing bike rider, we saw it in his time at Suzuki. It was quite similar when he was there back then, where that, again, as I mentioned it before, that bike has a very narrow operating window. And we saw it at Aragon and at Silverstone in that year in 2016, where they were great at Aragon, where Maverick led several laps of that race. And then Silverstone, where it, the fact it was so cold, the fact they were running the harder compound tire, what happens? Maverick destroys the, the field. He completely obliterated everybody. It was it was terrifying to see that in, in real time. So we had Maverick as the Marquez stopper for a little while. Like It was like Yamaha was nurturing their own young freak talent to try and get up the field. Um, and that was the beauty of it um, for, for Yamaha. They, they, they building up this adversary for you know that rival for Marquez that we've all been waiting and hoping to see. We still haven't quite gotten really that Marquez Vinales fight that we've all we've all been like dreaming of for the last mm. few years. But but despite that, yeah, this was a nice reminder of Maverick's class. And I, I again, I really. I really hope we see more of it. Because again, this guy's an this guy is an exceptional time. We forget how freaky he was in Moto Two when he was riding for Pons, and you know how good the Suzuki era was. As soon as he picked up the Suzuki, he was flying left, right, and center on it, and got got Suzuki's first win since returning. He's a big deal, Maverick, and he is a quality bike rider when he wants to be. It's just a shame that some of his internal dramas have spilled out. Um, over the last year or so, because there is a quality bike rider underneath all of that. Yeah, there is, and uh, and Yamaha, um, one of their best team results, combined results of the season. So uh, they had a lot uh, to celebrate um, last weekend. As as Dre mentioned, it will come down to Mategi next time out, which is another circuit mm-hmm. that on the face of it won't be Yamaha friendly because it's got a lot of acceleration zones, and that seems to be where they're particularly weak with their electronics. Mm-hmm. They're struggling to put the power down out of corners. Um, exactly. So uh, so we'll see how they go next weekend. Um, but for, for Thailand, uh, here's how it finished. Marquez, the winner from Davizioso and Vinales, as I mentioned, just 0.27 of a second covering the top three, which is the fourth closest rostrum uh, in MotoGP history. Valentino Rossi was a second and a half behind in fourth. As, uh, it's one of the things that we never really noticed in the end until you watch a few replays of that final corner. Just look at how close Rossi was to wiping his teammate out at the very last corner as uh, mm-hmm. all of the top four are absolutely standing on the brakes trying to uh, get their bike slow down and Rossi ends up having to run you know let the brake off and run wide just to avoid running into his teammate um and he finished fourth um John Zarco was fifth another Yamaha in the top five so uh, just underlining how much more competitive they were last weekend even Zarco was back on the pace that's his best result since Hareth uh, when he was second in the championship back then uh, Alex Rins sixth on the Suzuki backing up his strong showing at Aragon Cal Crutchlow who was running as high as fourth early on, fell back once the uh, pace got ratcheted up towards the end of the race and fell to seventh, just ahead of Alvaro Bautista in eighth. Danilo Petrucci and Jack Miller completing the top ten on the Pramac Ducatis, uh, with Andrea only eleventh. Uh, Hafish Sayarin was the top rookie in twelfth, ahead of Alessia Spargro, who managed to nurse that soft tyre somehow to get to the end in thirteenth. <laughs> Franco Mobidelli fourteenth, and Bradley Smith got a point for KTM in fifteenth place. He got Scott Redding on the final lap. Championship standings look like this. Mark Marquez leads to Andrea Davizioso by 77 points. He has 271 to Davizioso's 194. As long as Mark Marquez finishes uh, ahead of Andrea Davizioso in Mategi next weekend, he will wrap up his seventh world title next weekend. 
if they're both outside the top four, then Marquez can afford to finish one spot behind Andre Di Vizioso, but that is unlikely um, because they're going to be up the front. So Marquez simply has to beat Dobby on track and his champion. Valentino Rossi is looking pretty secure now in third in the championship. Uh, he's got a 26-point lead over his teammate, Maverick Vinales, in fourth. And Jorge Lorenzo, who was probably going to be the nearest threat um, to Rossi towards the end of the season, he is now 42 points back with his injury-enforced absence um, from the Thai Grand Prix. Uh, Cal Crutzo is sixth on 128, just two behind Lorenzo now. Uh, with Danilo Petrucci, two points further back in seventh. Joan Zarco is a further three points back in eighth. So from uh, fifth to eighth, it's looking pretty close for the final few races of the season. Just seven points separates them. Andre Inoni is 9th on 113, and Alex Rins is 10th on 102. 15 clear of Danny Pedroza, who looked like he was closing in towards the end. There was going to be a factor in that leading group. Um, but the mother of all commentators curse from uh, Keith Ewan no. and Neil Hodgson saw an end to his race. Uh, right, into Moto2, uh, and uh, a race that might well be a race that when we look back on this at the end of the season, we'll pinpoint this race as one of the ones where the championship finally started to get away from Miguel Oliveira uh, and KTM. Um, it was a race won in the end, Dre, by Pekka Banyai, leading a Sky of VR46 1-2. The first time that team has ever had a 1-2 uh, in any mm -hmm. class, so uh, congratulations to them. Um, but the way the race was panning out early on, it looked like uh, Pekka Banyai was going to be surrounded by KTMs. It looked like we were going to have a three-way fight at the front between Banyai, Binder and Oliveira. But in the end... Banyaya, even with two KTMs surrounding him, was just way too strong for the pair of them. Yeah, it's, it, it played out very to a standard Banyaya race. He will set the tone, and once the metronome starts swinging, he's virtually unbeatable. Um, and yeah, you're right, it seemed like he, he had a leading group of him, the KTMs, and Baldessari, who was in there as well from pole position, who sadly crashed. Um, in the early stages uh, on, on that one. Um, it was basically a leading group of three for the majority of it uh, until the end. Um, so, yeah, I, again, I, I, I thought we were going to have more of a dogfight here, but Banyaya pulled the pin with about nine to go, and then that was it, basically. Um, he, he's just so... He's such a brilliant rider from the front of the field. He's, he's, he's as good a front runner as I've seen in Moto2 for quite some time. Um, and... You know, it, it was interesting seeing the, the dynamic at KTM as well because, you know, I suspect Binder may have been the faster KTM oh, on yeah, the I day. But... Watching the race. I, I tweeted mid-race. Mm. I was like, as soon as Pekka got to the front, I thought, I think it, this, I, I tweeted it at the time. I said, I think KTM might be the best serve letting Binder through and letting him chase after Banyaya here. Um, yeah. that, might, that might be their best hope of winning this race because I don't think Oliveira's got the pace um, to keep up with Pekka here. Um, and... and Pecco had everything thrown at him really in that race, and it showed again one of the sort of one of the aspects, one of the traits that goes into making a champion. They're able to hold their nerve mm. and keep it together when things might not necessarily be in their favour. Because there were parts of that race where Oliveira was leading the race, and he had Binder between himself and Banyaya, um, which was the the perfect scenario for KTM. They'll have been thinking, well, if Binder can hold this and allow Oliveira to get away, I know it's a lot much more of a difficult strategy to employ in a bike race than it is in a car race. Um, where, as we've seen many times, as Dre will tell you in Formula 1, where either mm. uh, a silver driver up front has had his teammate between himself and the red behind him, or vice versa, um, they've been able to use that second sort of teammate to complicate things um, for their exactly. championship rival. Bit harder to employ in a bike race, but I think KTM had an opportunity to do that, but Banyaya was just wise to it and was able to get himself ahead of the KTMs and then gap them um, and, win, and win the Grand Prix. And 
that's that's mm-hmm. Bangaya's seventh win of the year to match Marquez uh, in MotoGP. He's now with seven races this season to Oliveira's two. And ultimately, Dre, whilst the championship is looking very, very close, and it still might go to the wire, it's 26 points between, uh, sorry, 28 points between the two, between Binder, uh, sorry, Banyaya and Oliveira. That win tally between the two, that does seem to kind of tell us a bit of a story of the season, whereas they have been quite closely matched, but in the end, the weight of wins just tells us, ultimately, who the marginally stronger of the two has been, would you say? Yeah, I think that I think that's just, that's it. Seven wins to Oliveira's two just about sums it up, really. Like Oliveira has to work really, really hard to win a race. That man, the Aya, if he's leading off the lap one, chances are he's going to win the whole damn thing. It's it's like Banyaya makes the winning look so easy, while Oliveira has to really fight for. We saw it in Bruno. He won that Bruno race brilliantly, but that was in another dogfight again with both the VR46 riders. And it wasn't um, like Oliveira had a qualifying handicap this time. He started ahead of Banyaya. Exactly. He started ahead of him on track, and it didn't matter. Banyaya found a way to win again, and he got to the front, and once he gets there, and once he's got clear in front of him, he has an extra tenth of a second of confidence that no one else seems to have. Um, it's it's scary, but I, I think that's been the difference maker. Oliveira's still in play because Banyai has had a couple more significantly bad days while Oliveira's finished every race in the top seven this season. He's not had a, a DNF or an or a awful race. Like, again, Aragon, I think, was the worst of it for him. And that was the qualifying expose, really, of Oliveira, where... Oh, Binders on pole, so it isn't just KTM as a chassis then. Um, but Banyai can win those races that Oliveira seemingly can't, and that might end up being the difference maker in this year's championship. And in the end, what really just emphasised what a great day it was for Banyai and for Sky VR46 on Sunday was the performance of Banyai's teammate, uh, Luca Marini, who we've already seen make his, his breakthrough win earlier in the year. Um, he's really sort of come of age just through the sort of the midway part of the season where we suddenly noticed him as a regular front row and regular podium threat almost out of nowhere. Um, and if you were to sort of paint a picture, Dre, if you're Banyaya of the perfect teammate, um, it would be a teammate who just seems to find a new level of pace in the closing stages of the race, chases down the two KTMs, which include Miguel Oliveira, Banyaya's championship rival, and then beats Oliveira on the very final lap. Yeah, the old wingman argument. Uh, somewhere a, a a listening Ryan King cries in the corner. Um, yes, like this, this, that's how you do it, folks. Um, yeah, Luca Marini was, you know, again, again, a late surge at the end there. Nice to see him back up the front after a little bit of a dry spell. He's because at one point he was looking like, oh, Marini's going to win some races soon, and it's not quite happened for him yet. But he's getting there, and uh, he's getting there pretty soon. And Sharpish, um, another strong performance in Berlin. And again, the perfect scenario for Manny and knowing that his teammate had come through and taken a few extra critical points um, off the KTMs. And again, as mentioned, the first, the first VR46 1-2 finish in Moto2 on that gorgeous Sky Ocean Rescue livery. Um, so yeah, Marini the wingman uh, in this case, coming in very, very useful to... Uh, so further um, damage to KTM's odds of the title with Oliveira. So, uh, yeah, excellent performance from Marini. Yeah, I said breakthrough with him. I went break, breakthrough pole position that he had at Bruno when he finished second um, in that mm. race to Oliveira. He's had now four podiums this season um, as, as Luca Marini, and they've all come since the Saxon ring. So they've all come in the last, what, six races? Um, yeah. So he's having a, a, a tremendous run at the moment, is Luca Marini. 
um, in that team, and he's going to be the leader of that team. Now he's going to take that role on from Banyai next season when he has Nicolo Bulliga within that team as his teammate um, next year at Sky VR46. Um, next year's Moto2 Championship is going to be fantastic um, with, with all of the changes oh, yeah. off the track, changes to the bikes, the uh, kind of refresh that it's going to have up the front with the top two in the championship both moving on, um, as well as Juan Mia moving on as well out of Moto2 um, into MotoGP next year. Um, it is going to be fascinating, and you'd imagine that Lorenzo Baldessari is going to feature somewhere in there as well. He's got to fancy himself as a championship challenger next year. Um, and he'd kind of not fallen off the radar because he still had some good results, but he hadn't quite backed up that great start to the season that he had, where we kind of thought that he might be a title contender this year, um, particularly when he won so brilliantly from pole um, at Jerez. Um, now, of course, he returned to the podium uh, at Aragon last time out when he finished third. He had that battle towards the end. Um, mm -hmm. with uh, with uh, Alex Marquez and Marcel Schrotter that saw him take that podium spot um, right at the end of the race. His return to pole position uh, last weekend in Thailand was was welcome and uh, an ill-timed crash. But is this still a rider, Dre, that you think... I mean, he's he's still up towards the front. He's fourth in the World Championship at the moment, is Baldessari, so he's not exactly having a disappointing season. He's having his best season ever as a Grand Prix rider. Absolutely. Um, but is this a rider who will be looking towards next season thinking this is my chance to not only you know, win races on a consistent basis rather than an occasional basis, but actually challenge for this championship. Yeah, I think he's going to need another half step in his game here. Because I think he's a guy that is up there. On, on, on Lorenzo Baldo's good days, he's right up there challenging for victories, you know, scoring pole positions. He's as good as anyone is in the class on his day. But he's got that problem of he just doesn't seemingly have enough days. Yeah, they seem to if be that one extreme or the other, doesn't he? I mean, how many? I mean, just exactly. going through his season, that that race in Thailand last weekend was his uh, fourth non-score of the season, which is just too many. Yeah, you're not going to win a title doing that very often, unfortunately. It's just sadly, it's just not going to work out in the long run when that when that's happening. Like, you're not going to win very many titles doing that. You need to clean up those mistakes when you can help it. Um, so yeah, like Lorenzo's not going to win the title that way, and you know maybe with with um, Banyaya and Oliveira out of the picture for next season, Quattararo as well, um, maybe that will be the catalyst to really bring the best out of Lorenzo Baldassari. Is that maybe that maybe next year will be his year? But he's going to have to worry about a lot of talented guys behind him. Obviously, Alex Marquez will still be there. You know, Xavi Vierge will be will, will be on the Mark VDS, like which could be dangerous. Marcel Schrotter seems to have improved as well in, in the latter half of this season. You know, Luca Marini is probably going to be the other major contender on paper, and he'll be spearheading the VR46 team next season. So there's a lot on the plate for next season. Next season, next season will probably be fantastic. I can't yeah. wait to see to how that feels. The likes of Jorge Martin and Marco Bezzecchi moving up as well, and Anaya Bastianini oh, yes. are moving up. Uh, next year, more of those three in a second, um, because they had interesting weekends as well on uh, uh, the weekend in Thailand. But let's first of all give you the Moto2 result uh, from Buriram. It was a uh, first ever 1-2, as we mentioned, for Sky VR46, with Banyaya leading home Marini, uh, with a 3-4 for Red Bull KTM IO in uh, the third and fourth, Oliveira from Binder. Uh, Fabio Quattararo is another rider out of Moto2 into MotoGP next season. Uh, fifth on the speed up, ahead uh, of Matei Pessini in sixth. Uh, Ike Lacuona in seventh. Um, that's second, uh, his second best result of the season because he was fifth in uh, America at the start of the year. Uh, it was a career best, though, for the Japanese Tetsuta Nagashima uh, in eighth. Mm. Uh, Andrea Locatelli was ninth. 
uh, and Simone Corsi 10. The other points positions went to Xavi Vieje, Remy Gardner on the Tech 3, Joe Roberts on the NTS. Um, so that was uh, five different manufacturers scoring points. Um, Bo Benchneider scoring his first ever Moto2 points on the second Tech 3 and 14th. And also a first ever Moto2 World Championship point for Nikki Tooley. Um, who, of course, has a uh, hey. World Supersport podium to his name around Ram in the past, so he was always going to go slightly better than normal um, last weekend, and he scored his first ever championship point in 15th position, so well done to him. Championship standings then. Banyaya leads by 28 points now with four races to go, so Oliveira is... Uh, getting to that point of the season where we need snookers to chase him down. Uh, Brad Binder is looking pretty safe now in third in the championship on 157 points. He's now a full race win clear of Baldazari in fourth. Uh, Alex Marquez, who has now uh, failed to finish, in fact, he's crashed um, out of three of the last four races now. In fact, four of the last five for Alex Marquez. Um, he is now down in fifth in the championship. Uh, two points ahead of his teammate, Joan Mir, in sixth, who also crashed. He was knocked down on the first lap. Uh, Marcel Schrotter is 7th on 118, Matteo um, Pettini 8th on 113, Quartararo 9th on 111, and Marini is 10th now on 104. Um, so from 4th in the championship down to 10th, there are just 28 points separating them. So that could end up as a very, very close battle for the uh, minor top 10 places in the championship at the end of this Moto 2 season. Uh, Moto 3 is similarly close uh, up the front, and uh, it, was, it was another classic Moto 3 race. It was. We've already spoken about the uh, the positives and the uh, what, the the aspects of this Boram circuit that make it great for racing. It certainly made it great for Moto Three racing um, because it has so many fast corners that you can race closely through, and it's got a number of straights where the slipstream is going to keep the pack close together. Mm. Um, but in the end, it was it was all on the final lap, really, Dre, that it happened. And before we talk about the mayhem that affected the championship battle, we need to talk about the guy that ended up winning it because he kind of got he almost got lost in the shuffle, really, with everything that happened behind him. Right, Fabio Di Gianantonio, his second career win now. Um, gone are the days now where we'll talk about this guy as the uh, perennial nearly man in Moto Three, where we feared that he wouldn't win a race. He's now won two of them this season. Uh, took it with a, a brilliant move, similar to the move that we saw Mark Marquez make in the, the move that ultimately won him the race over Andrea Vizioso, uh, with the Gian Antonio mm. making that, that brilliant move into turn eight on Lorenzo Della Porta uh, halfway around the final lap, which enabled him to have the uh, you know the, the high ground going into that final corner. And uh, when we factor in what happened behind him with the championship contenders, which we'll discuss in a second, dare we whisper it quietly, is Gian Antonio not out of this yet? Well... 29 points back with four to play and the way Moto3 shakes out, the way the season has played out where it seems to have been that dodging chaos and unforced errors has basically been the story of Moto3 this season. Hell yeah, DG's back in the race. Why not? Like, seriously. The way this season's played out with Jorge Martin drifting between winning, injury and crashing or DNFing in some capacity. I mean... The last corner mayhem would be something if it wasn't for the fact that we've already had three or four of these this season already, yeah. um, where we've had last lap shenanigans or last lap drama or some sort of pinball-related incident in, in the field that's hit a major contender. It's been that sort of season this year, um, for better or worse. And 29 points out with four to go, knowing that, you know, Martin is not consistent in the way the season's played out. He's had ups and downs all year long. Hell yeah, I'd say DJ Antonio is still a threat for this title. Why not? Yeah, he's 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 got the uh, he's playing that sort of under the radar consistent game at the moment because he's 
with what happened to Bezeki last weekend, he's now joined Martin on four non-scores this season, um, right. which uh, which is ironic. We were sort of just telling you a moment ago how um, you're not going to win a championship doing that, but it's a uh, it's been a kind of crazy season, Montessori, where just about everyone's having problems. Martin, if you include the race that he didn't start in uh, in Bruno, which of course was his fault, he crashed out in practice and didn't start the race. Um, that added to the uh, DNFs in Catalonia, uh, Le Mans, and uh, Jerez are four races he's travelled to this season and left with no points. But Zeki now has done the same uh, with his non-scores at Le Mans uh, and Assen, uh, Mizano, of course, uh, a couple of rounds prior, and then at Thailand. And we have to feel very, very sorry for Marco Bezeki on this occasion, Dre, because it was a weekend where he pretty much did everything he could. He put it on pole position um, on the <laughs> Saturday, a brilliant lap towards the end of qualifying that put him on pole position, not by a little either. He was on pole by some four tenths of a second um, mm. on the Saturday. He almost did a Jorge Martin in qualifying, really, um, to, to do what he did. And he was under so much pressure in the race. He spent more time than anyone else at the very front of the race under all of that pressure. And then he got kind of beaten up a bit on that final lap when... Dalla Porter and Dijan Antonio came past him on the back straight. Um, and then going to that final corner, um, he's kind of in that position where he's kind of having to settle for third now. He's going to take the 16 points that are on offer and, and get out of Thailand and essentially mm-hmm. cut Jorge Martin's championship lead in half. And then a uh, out-of-control bordering on crashing NA at Bastuni comes sliding straight into the side of his Bristol KTM. And... It's it's heartbreaking for Bezeki when he's done absolutely nothing wrong in the race. He's done nothing wrong in that incident. He's the innocent victim of someone else's accident, um, and you know he has made his fair share of mistakes this season as as Jorge Martinez. But mm. it's one of those heartbreaking scenarios in a championship fight where someone outside of the two championship contenders suddenly makes his own mistake, Danny Pedrosa Estoril style, and just completely blows this championship apart and. Bezeki's now going to be thinking to himself, is that the moment that costs me any shot of this world title? Right. And yeah, I've always, I, like, I've never really, yeah, I mean, like, I've, I've never really subscribed to that camp of, you know, title, like guys outside their title fight shouldn't be involved. Well, if an A.M. Bastini stands a mathematical chance of winning the title, why wouldn't he go for it? So like, I, I get it. I I I get that side yeah, of the fence. I, I get it. Bo- I think we both have a sort of middle ground on this one, don't we? Where we don't agree with the mm. stay out of the championship contenders' way, but I, th- I think we certainly think of well, we're not telling you not to overtake them, but certainly don't knock them off. Right, like like, and A. M. Bastini was completely out of control. He had no chance of making that corner whatsoever. He was going to go wide, wide, and probably drifting somewhere towards India um, by the time that he was able to get that bike stopped. He had no chance of getting that stopped in time. Um, it was it was a, it was borderline reckless from an A. Bastianini on that one, and not not for the first time this season. Bezeki's been caught out underneath it, and. It's a shame, and we mentioned it before. Yes, it has been a season of chaos, a season of unforced errors from some of the bigger hitters out there in uh, in, in Moto3 this year. However, you don't want to see a close up-and-down championship decided by someone that's not in that fight. It's frustrating because you're never going to get a clear picture on what's going on, and uh, it's hard not to feel sorry for Bezeki on that one. That was another brutal bit of bad luck to be taken out on the final corner by a Bastini that was desperate for something. I'm not sure what. It certainly wasn't the podium because he wasn't breaking from that far, um, that far out. Um, it was it was ridiculous, and it, it had a major and catastrophic effect on the championship. So now it's gone from it being really. I mean, we worked this out. We reckon roughly 
Bezeki would have probably finished third if it wasn't yeah, for Inea well, there. They were battling for third. Um, Bezeki yeah. and Bastianini. Going to that final corner, um, Marco Bezeki was in third, Bastianini was in fourth. Um, then we had um, Jorge Martin was back in seventh at this stage, mm-hmm. um, which was, I'm pretty sure that was about as high as he'd been at any stage in the race. We'll talk about Martin's race in, in a minute because. Um, mm. It's making it sound like he was actually having a bad race. He wasn't, given the circumstances of his weekend. He was actually having a very good race. Um, but yeah, going to that final corner, we had um, Bezeki third, Bastianini fourth, Dennis Foggia fifth, Cornfile, who's the teammate of Bezeki sixth, and then Martin seventh. So basically, Bastianini goes up the inside of Martin and just scoops him up by um, losing the front and making a mistake. That then allows Foggia to into third. Cornfile, who was sixth, gets held up behind the crash and loses out himself. And Jorge Martin, uh-huh. going from seventh under breaking for the final corner, comes out of it fourth, does a celebratory wheelie because he knows how important that result is. And from right. we, we had the live championship graphic on screen to help us. As they went yeah. to that final corner, Martin was going to have a six-point championship lead with four races to go. And as it is, it became 26. So that, that one incident cost Marco Bezzecchi 20 points massive that's a massive difference um now martin's got a race in hand with four to go and yeah that doesn't mean so much in moto three again given how crazy it is given how competitive the series is um it that's far from a deal breaker for bezeki i mean there's still plenty of time for him to claw that back in even if the clock is starting to run out a little bit on that and again Bez with six points, who knows? Bez tw- minus 26, that could be a problem, especially if Martin gets a clear run and can win another race. If, he can, if Martin can win one more race, he's, he's in control of this championship. You could probably argue he still is anyway with a 26-point lead before to go, but the way this season's played out, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not too certain of that myself. But it, 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 it was a big, big swing, and it's 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 now Bezeki's got to claw his way back into play one more time, and he's not got a lot around to do it in. Actually, as it goes, Fabio Di Giannantonio would have been even closer to the championship lead had that incident not happened. If he'd have won the race with Martin back in seventh as opposed to being in fourth, um, mm-hmm. Di Giannantonio would be only 25 points off the championship lead. I mean, he would be within a race of the championship lead. He'd be in a position where if this was the final round decider coming up, he would have a genuine shot of winning the title. Uh, at the end of this weekend. So, uh, yeah, those those positions gained by Martin certainly um, didn't exactly help Di Antonio Edix. He was going to win the race, whatever happened behind him. Um, right. he'd, he'd got the job done. Um, but, yeah, this championship just seems to swing one way and the next with every race that goes by. So it's impossible to rule anyone out of it, really, because, as I say, it's not it's not exactly a championship where non-scores have been hard to come by. The, you know, Each of the main championship contenders, as I've already said, have had four of them each. So who's to say they're not going to have one more? Uh, before the season ends uh, in four races time which could bring um, Di Gianni Antonio right into the into play um, by the time we get to Valencia um, but let's talk Jorge Martin then let's talk about his weekend he, he didn't really have the pace in the dry anyway on Friday he wasn't exactly up the front in free practice he was out of the top 10 already then he turns up on Saturday um, with a trapped nerve in his left arm which he picked up whilst having a massage a routine massage ahead of the Grand Prix um, on what must have been on the Friday night or on the Saturday morning. He traps a nerve in his left arm. He's having to ride with a specially modified Alpine Stars glove with elastic cords on it to help him open his hand, um, which basically, without that, he wouldn't have been able to use the clutch properly um, because he was saying after qualifying, where he'd qualified down in 13th and had done limited running in qualifying, he'd only done eight laps in qualifying because he wasn't fully fit. 
Um, I mm -hmm. wasn't sure whether he was going to race. So he had that modified clutch, which essentially had those cords, which enabled him to um, um, open his hand and use the clutch. For him to get through all of that, Dre, and finish fourth um, from 13th on the grid, where he'd been, you know, pretty much a, a bit part player in that leading group throughout, just gives us another insight. It's just how how good Jorge Martin is. We've seen the best of him in qualifying. We've seen what pure pace he has. We've also seen how much grit and how much determination he has to ride through the pain barrier and how badly he wants this championship. Exactly. I mean, and to think this is not even the first injury Martins had to contend with this season. And a, a bizarre one at that. Trapped nerve in a, in a sports massage? I mean, really? <laughs> the, yeah, the physio guy's getting fired. Um, yeah, that, doing that, that one. Yeah, he's going to be sleeping in bed tonight with a horse's head um, in his bed. But yeah, like, like I said, it was, it was a bizarre in Yeah, another one that Martin's had to overcome. And again, like the story of Martin this year has been making the best out of bad situations. And he happened in Austria earlier this year after the wrist damage. And he, you know, he qualified on the front row and, and finished on the podium in the end. And, you know, that was an incredible performance from Martin. Like, this kid is, a, is such a sensational talent. And once again, with the deck stacked against him with a specially adapted glove that had to keep his hand stretched out. So he was far from in 100% comfort. He was probably in a lot of pain by the time that race was over. Um, he still, once again, finds a way to get through it and gets a solid result. Um, and again, a, a, a critical one in the context of the championship fight, because again, and, and you know, Bezeki's had another forced error. And again, not, not his fault, but that's just how the cookie crumbles in motorsports sometimes. And Martin's been in the right place at the right time, and that's what's given him this 26-point lead. Mm, it is, and uh, it, he, he, it was just... You know, justification for that that mantra that a lot of people use of never give up. It was just one of those races where mm. if you if you just kept going, you suck at it, just rid through that pain barrier. You, he got his reward in the end. And whilst even Martin said himself, it was not the ideal way to do it. He, he doesn't want to see anything bad happen to his championship rival. Um, right. Martin got his reward because he said, I mean, he was running outside the top ten for a lot of the race. Has to be said in that leading group, which was over a dozen riders. Martin was spent most of the race nearer the back of it than the front. Um, in fact, as I said, fourth was his finishing position, and that was as high as he was at any stage in the race. And um, he gained three of those spots at the last quarter. Uh, he said to MCN he was thinking about retiring at one point until he saw a few crashes ahead of him. Um, has to be right. said quietly, one of those crashes was down to Martin. He knocked Kazuki Masaki off um, during Oops. the race. Um, but he said that yeah, he saw a few of those crashes in front, and they saw another one with um, Vincenti Perez and, and John McPhee, which promoted him two spots. Um, and that basically gave him the, the motivation to keep going because he knew there were points on the table for him. Um, and he basically sp spelled it out for us. He said, for sure, without having the glove to help him use the clutch, he would not have been able to finish the race. Um, he said That's it in crazy. those words. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't an ideal weekend for Martin. He had his problems, he had his challenges, but he rode through them and got the result in fourth. Um, just to mention, though, the other riders on the podium, Lorenzo Della Porta finished in second. Um, showing that his win in Mizano was by no means a flash in the pan. He is now up to sixth in the World Championship now with that. Um, but, Dre, we have to, really, if we're going to give a rider of the day out, and with all due respect to Martin and his, uh, his injury that uh, really handicapped him through the race, we have to dop our hats to Dennis Foggia, the junior world oh, champion wow. of last year. Sky VR46's latest prodigy. Um, he came from 25th on the grid to third sensational sensational comeback from this 4G and a, a reminder of 
why there was such a, a lot of hype around this kid coming in. We, we praised him for being completely fearless and, uh, you know, having no respect for anybody out there where he was just going in there and attacking people um, and just, you know, taking the race by the, by the scruff of the neck. And that's what he did. 25th to 3rd is a sensational recovery um, from from Foggia on that one. That is why he had all that hype going into coming into his first full-time season after the junior world title. So, yeah, brilliant stuff from Dennis Foggia. Yeah, with four laps to go, he was actually leading the whole thing. Um, incredibly. Um, you know, he, with four laps to go, he was 25th to the lead and he was actually in position to potentially win his first Grand Prix. Um, mm. But yeah, he is he is another Sky VR46 rider who clearly has a bright, bright future. Um, let's give you the result then um, from last weekend in Moto3. As I mentioned, it was a, a second victory of the season for Fabio Di Gian Antonio um, with an all-Italian podium with Della Porta and Foggia uh, joining him on the rostrum. Jorge Martin in fourth. Gabriel Rodrigo also had to come from way down on the grid to finish fifth. Uh, ahead of Vicente Perez, that's his career best in sixth. Nicolo Bulliga, who basically doubled his points tally for the entire season uh, by finishing seventh. Uh, Marcos Yikes. Ramirez in eighth. Uh, Somkiat Chantra, who was one of the two Thai wildcards last weekend, he finished ninth, so well done to him. Uh, ahead of Jakob Kohlfeil, that's how badly he got delayed by the last corner crash. He was on target to finish in fifth. He drops all the way down to tenth. Uh, with Andrea Migno in 11th, Kato Toba 12th, Philippe Ertel 13th, Tony Arbolino in 14th, and Adam Noradin took the final World well, Championship point ahead of the other Thai wildcard, um, who's got a name with just about as many syllables as the uh, regular Thai rider, Atarat Fubapat. Apuat Wong Tananon uh, is his Nailed name. This. He finished in 16th um, and missed out on a World well, Championship point. Um, Bezeki and Bastini, of course, were way down the field, having take, been taken out of the final quarter. And this is what it's done to the championship, uh, with Martin now 26 points clear on 204 points. Bezeki's 178. Dijan Antonio is on 175, so he's only 29 off the lead. Bastianini is now out of it. He's 71 back uh, with four races to go. Aaron Cannett, who didn't race last weekend due to injury, uh, he's still suffering from the injury he suffered back at Mizano uh, in that horrible first lap pile-up. He's uh, fifth on 118 points. Dalla Porta up to sixth on 111. Rodrigo seventh on 108. Confound eighth on 102. Ramirez ninth on 86. And Andre Migno tenth on 76. Next round of the championship is next weekend uh, for the Japanese Grand Prix at Bateki, a circuit of course owned by Honda. Uh, and all of the employees and fans of Honda will be turning up looking to see Mark Marquez potentially win seventh world title we'll preview that of course on next week's show then let's uh let's move on to the news um before we go and uh, a lot of news is broken um looking ahead to next year with riders being signed up in moto 3 and in bsb we'll come on to the headline news of bsb shortly uh, but first of all dre moto 3 news um great news if you're british great news if you're particularly bt sports uh, orientated keith ewan's got another brit to cheer for uh, in Moto3 next season the poor recipient of this, the poor recipient of this cheerleading will be tom booth amos um, the dominant isn't even on the word uh, champion of the British Motorstar Championship last season. He practically won every race. 
um, mm-hmm. on his way to the championship. He's clearly a talent. He's been riding in the junior world championship this season and has been spending most of it injured, so he hasn't really had a fair shot um, at uh, showing what he can do. But he's going to have a fair shot next season with the CIP Moto3 team. Uh, next year. I mean, it's always difficult, I suppose, Dre, looking at the national championships, particularly in Britain, um, in uh, you know a country which is more geared towards superbike racing. So the uh, the best young talent don't necessarily go through British Moto Star. Um, but right. it, it's pretty clear from what we've seen of Tom Booth Amos that this is a kid who deserves a shot at Grand Prix racing, and he's getting it next year. Yeah, he, there's been a lot of belief and hype around this kid for the last couple of years. He was a star of the Talent Cup. He was one of the the, the shining lights in that early initiative. Um, the 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 the, uh, the patience for McPhee, I think, has come and gone. And I think Moto Three needs another young British uh, star in there to potentially get fans excited. And Booth Amos has done everything right on the junior level. Again, he dominated British Moto Star. We would have been a bigger factor in the junior world title this year if it wasn't for injury, but clearly, like the employees of CIP have seen enough to give him a chance on a full time basis, and I, I can't wait to see how he fares in in the context of the world championship. It's going to be a it's going to be a massive step up in competition for him for sure because Moto Three is ruthless as all hell. Um, but I'm very curious to see how he turns out. Yeah, I think he'll do a good job next season. He's one of those where we saw him wildcard at Silverstone this year, and of, of course he never got the chance to actually race in the end because of what we saw on the Sunday. Uh, he'd qualified 28 for that. He was, you know, two from the back. But when you're on, uh, you know, on a one-off appearance on a wildcard entry with a bike that's not used to racing at that level and a rider who's not mm-hmm. used to racing against that competition, you're it's always unlikely that you're going to see a rider stand up. I mean, I've already referenced Chantra, the Thai who wildcarded last weekend um, at Buriram, and you know they're the exception rather than the rule um when we when it comes to wild cards it's very rare that we see wild cards up that high yeah. up um in racing um you really do need to really to get an idea of how good they can be you need to give them the chance of a full season pre-season testing the ability to fill familiarize themselves with the tracks and learn all the tracks and booth amos is going to get that next year and i think he'll be a, a very competitive rider next year and he'll do a good job mm-hmm. in that class the big news though this week has not so much come with uh you know, British riders as much as it's come with the British Championship because BYZ Chikati already confirmed Scott Redding last week um, as one of their their two riders for the 2019 British Superbike season. Well, they've confirmed his teammate next year and he's not a Brit, he's an Australian. Um, he is that Australian that you're all thinking of. The one Australian you all think of when it comes to British Superbikes, Josh Brooks, um, who is now, he's now going to be riding oh, for, well, what, Dre, his third different team in three years. Um, yeah. Uh, in fact, it's probably his fourth different team in four years because before Anvil Hire, he was with Milwaukee, wasn't he? Uh, in World Superbikes. Um, so he's, he's been on the move as Josh Brooks. He's been, it gives, it's all got the hallmarks of a rider who's lurching, trying to find the best team and the best package. Um, well, he's now trying his luck with the new Ducati V4 Panigale next year. And uh, can you believe that if, if we'd been saying this six months ago or even a year ago, that we'd have a British Superbike lineup, but BYZ Ducati, the team that we all know is one of the strongest in that paddock, and their two riders for 2019 are going to be Scott Redding and Josh Brooks. What an extraordinary combination that is, and what a mouth-watering prospect for BSB next year. Oh, God, that is the best team in the paddock, bar none, on paper. That is an insane team. Yeah, Josh Brooks has been like the lone warrior of, of, of Superbike racing for the last... 
I mean, well, it's been it's now going to be five years in five different entities for Brooks. If you include the World Superbike year with Milwaukee BMW, you could throw that out there as well. So by the time 2019 starts, it would be his fifth different bike and fifth different environment he's been in in the last five years, which, you know, could be a little bit deflating seeing Josh go from team to team. But he's just you could clearly tell he's desperate to, to win another BSB title. And I'm not sure going to the team with Scott Redding on the way in is the best way of going about it, but it's a hell of a team and it's a hell of a failsafe. I mean, we don't know what Redding's going to bring to the table coming in. If he doesn't work out, you know, Josh Brooks is a proven entity and a proven brilliant rider in BSB. Again, you know, former, former British champion, you know, um, again, was a, a top contender last season. Again, very nearly stole that title and ran, ran off into the sunset with it last year, just three points short. Um, of, of winning the domestic title last year, so he's more than good enough to be there, and he's more than good enough to justify and um, you know justify top bidding again. I do wonder though, like why did he walk off of a McCann's Yamaha team that is just starting to knock on the door of victories again? Like Taron McKenzie well, yeah, is. We really, both kind of posed the question, didn't we? Is it is it mm. more is the reason not so much that more the fact that it's his young upstart teammate who's also suddenly started to knock on the door of victories and starting to beat him. Right, that's the last thing because like Taron McKenzie has ridden exceptionally well since Brands Hatch last. Uh, like, like last time we were at Brands Hatch earlier in the season, Taron's you know, is riding at a podium slash race contending level since then. He, McKenzie's had a freakish ride the last half of the season, and Brooks is starting to play second fiddle a little bit in that team. So I wonder maybe if preempting that he's fought his best chances with Ducati instead and mm, basically being the experienced yeah spearhead on that team with a new bike they needed a Panigale V4 making its racing debut next year and if Scott Redding don't work out then who knows but uh yeah it's gonna be uh it's gonna be a very very interesting dynamic in I the BYS Ducati about team to say that that the dynamic between mm. those two is gonna be fascinating yeah very early days. It's easy to say this just on paper, but I'm not so sure of they're going to get on all that well. Um, Ooh, they're two, they're that, two strong personalities. Um, of no mistake, you just need to follow Scott Redding's Instagram for to, to you know to back that up. Um, and um, Scott Redding, of course, is a, is a world class rider. He's a, a Grand Prix winner. He is a Moto Two Championship runner up. Um, he's he's not going to he's going to want to come to the British Superbike Championship to show that he is a world class talent, and he's going to try and come here to win. Josh right. Brooks is going to want to... He's obviously moving to BYU's Chicati because he thinks that this is going to give him the best shot of, of winning his second title. And he is not going to... He will appreciate how good Scott Redding is, but ultimately, he is not going to want to move to BYU's Chicati and be beaten by a rookie. Uh, no. Which, 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 you know, although it's a step down in terms of the overall ladder of world motorsport, it's still a new class with a new type of motorcycle, much less electronics, new tyres, Pirelli tyres as opposed to Michelin's. There's a lot for Scott Redding to learn next year, uh, and Josh Brooks will not want to be beaten by him. Um, so you're going to imagine that one of those two is going to be beaten by the other, and they're not going to like it. Um, so exactly. it's, it's, it is going to be interesting to see how the dynamic of that um, plays out. We're also likely to see um, another world-class British rider in the class, because we told you last week that Danny Kemp was going to be testing with the uh, Halsall Suzuki team and could well be on that bike this weekend. We can confirm that he will be. Um, the test that took place today clearly went well. Um, yesterday and today, should I say. So Danny <laughs> Kemp will be racing in the Brands BSP finale this weekend, which we'll preview in just a moment. Um, 
So we could have Danny Ken and Scott Redding on the BSP grid next season alongside Josh Brooks. The one sort of knockout effect from this, uh, I don't want to use the term collateral damage because I think he's you know, he's been damaged enough this season with the uh, crash right. that he had in testing. But but Shaky Byrne, the uh, most successful rider, the greatest rider in the history of British Superbikes, it is now confirmed that obviously BYZ aren't going to be running three bikes next season. So we're confirmed now that Shaky Byrne will not be riding for that team next season, which we could probably have all predicted given how badly injured he was. Um, mm. And that, you know, the time it's likely going to take for him to recuperate and to get to the stage where he's 100% fit again, which he may not even reach at all. Um, but even yeah. if he does, yeah. it's not even if he does, it's not going to be by the start of next season, which will be in April um, 2019. So it's not necessarily a surprise to learn that Chicky Byrne will not be riding for B1's Chikati. And it's also not a surprise that B1's Chikati have had to make alternative plans. Right. But it does appear from what we read on social media this week, Dre, that it did come as a slight surprise to Shaky. It looks that way, doesn't it? Um, it? The way he worded the tweet about it this afternoon, I, I, I might be able to put it up here real quick. I will do in just a second. Oh, hi, Cookie. Cass walked in. Lovely. Um, right. Yeah, here's the tweet. It says, and I quote, All good things must come to an end. Well, as one door closes, another door's open. God, all the cliches. Um, that's a fact. Unfortunately, I can't promise I'll be racing next year, but I can promise if I am, it's a game time. I'll be there for wins and another title shot no matter what. Hashtag don't count me out. Um, Which tells us two things. First of all, that Shaky Burn isn't considering himself retired. He's still very much is mm. is targeting a return to regular competition, but it also tells us right. that when BYZ Ducati signed Josh Brooks, that was the first shake he found out about it. Clearly. Yeah, like the... Uh, he would not have come out with that statement if he was told beforehand what was going to happen. Well, he looked at that like... like um, looks like we're done here. Um, which is surprising given the amount that Shakey has given back to Paul Bird Motorsport in general. Like from the, the, their brief stint in MotoGP to the dominance they've had now in BSB and following... Paul Bird, wherever they've gone, Shaky's been the centerpiece of that for quite some time now. And, you know, I'm surprised that PBM has, has moved on so quickly um, from, from Shaky. I mean, I've, I've said it before. I will say it again. Did Paul know something that we didn't? Um, um, that's because led up to because this. It's, because... it's a clear message you're sending out when you sign Josh Brooks. You're not signing him as a placeholder until Shaky's fit. You're signing him as a replacement. You're signing him, yeah, because I think Brooks can win the title. Like, because that's been Brooks for the last two or three years now. He's an elite rider in B. And compare um, and contrast you... that to the IndyCar injury of Robert Wickens, where the team basically said to Wickens, we'll hold the car for you until you're fit again. B-Wise aren't doing that. Exactly. B-Wise was like, B-Wise was like, yep, yeah, we're moving on. <laughs> we're <laughs> on to 2019. Uh, and whereas Peterson said in their statement um, that, you know, Sam Schmidt, who runs the team, said, no, we are keeping that seat. The number six car will be Roberts when slash if he recovers. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it, I, I find it crazy that Paul Bird was so quick to move on. But I guess that's business for you at the end of the day. I mean, that's, I guess that's how, that's, I, guess, I guess that's how it <clears throat> shakes out sometimes. <clears throat> but um, it's, it's a hell of a team. I can't blame Paul for setting that team up. If he, if he had a chance to get Red in, and Brooks to form your team instead. And instead of the Irwin brothers, you're taking that 11 times out of 10. Um, you've now got two really solid cracks at the championship, no matter which way you slice it. So I understand where Paul's coming from, but 
I guess you can't wait until November, until way past the season's finished, to make a decision on because that's when Shaky's going to find out whether he can actually race again. He's always said November will be you know the the kicker. We'll we'll see if his neck's healed enough where he can actually think about riding a bike again. Um, that is, as you can probably already tell, given we're previewing the season finale this weekend. That's a long way from now. And by that point, most of the BSP paddock will probably be confirmed. We've already seen Dixon's on the move. We've already seen Brad Ray is confirmed. We know Glenn Irwin is confirmed. There's still heavy rumours that Ben Curry will be his teammate in Bournemouth Kawasaki next year. Um, like uh, We're starting to see riders form their spots. We, we heard, I think, earlier this week, Danny Bucken is now confirmed again at FS3. Um, so you're starting to see the pieces fall into place now. So, Paul Bird can't wait around. And if you can sign Josh Brooks, why the hell wouldn't you sign Josh Brooks? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a... It, 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 they've yanked out the rug from underneath Shaky on that one. But I can also understand why. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, just finally on the uh, on the Josh Brooks signing, uh, before we move on, um, I've just been reminding of a, of a quote that... Um, well, I've got a quote from uh, Scott Redding in MCN this week, and it reminds me of an argument that I've forgotten about, Dre. Remember this? Because Scott Redding opens this quote by saying, we had a bit of an argument about the TT on social media. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, they didn't agree on it, did they? (laughs) No, they did not. No, uh, they did not. So so Scott Redding, he says, we've had a bit of an argument about the TT on social media, so I wouldn't say we get on, but I've never really spoken to him, to be fair. I'm happy to wipe the slate clean. I'm not there to throw my weight around. I'm there to do a job, but I won't take shit from anyone. He's a good oh, rider. Yeah. He's a good rider, a bit inconsistent, but we'll see. Oh, oh no, Scott! Yeah, no. Great start, Scott. Yeah, he's he's, he's, he's coming into that British Superbike Championship to uh, to take names, he, isn't he? He can't help himself, can he? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that 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 uh, combination is going to uh, combust, isn't it? Let's see if it even makes mm-hmm. it to Silverstone for the uh, season opener before it falls apart. Uh, Scott Reddick and Josh Brooks uh, together. Um, at BY's Ducati next season. Josh Brooks was actually much uh, much more pleasant and polite about him. He said, most of what I know about him is what I've read on social media. Um, and you, know, you and me both, Josh. Uh, I've never mm. really had any real conversations with him. We'll see how we get on. The cream always rises to the top, so even if it takes a few rounds for him to learn things, he should reach his potential. Um, which is, uh, yeah, as AJ uh, on the uh, Discord chat quite rightly uh, puts it, we've got Scott Redding, who is Scott Redding, and Josh Brooks, an Australian. <laughs> so... In yeah, the so, same team yeah, in capital same team. So um, yeah, so yep, good luck controlling. Go. Good luck controlling that one, Paul Bird, next year. Um, Have fun with that. Yeah, it's going to be difficult to call actually to see who's going to come out on that top. But uh, yeah, you might actually be able to um, make some money on that yourself over on Pit Stop Betting uh, next year. Uh, come on, Dre. We know you've got a view on this. Uh, Pit Stop Betting uh, announced today as exclusive betting partner of Bennett's BSB. <sighs> Discuss. <laughs> and the floor is mine all of a sudden. <laughs> you mean the guy who works and has done two and a half years? Mm. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I wonder what Dre's takes on this. Um, Lasai, uh, as Cam puts in the Discord. Yeah, I mean, I've ne- like that's the thing, right? The obvious comparison is Sky. Sky, Sky Sports is massive. Sky Sports News is massive. It's the only. It's the only Sky Sports channel you get get, get every TV of a Skybox for free. They also have a betting company, Skybet, and as, as and I'm, I'm sure you've probably seen Paul Merson clap his hands in the thunderclap and shout "boost" 150 mm. times on Twitter. But it's kind of dangerous because, like, 
having a media company own a betting company is not a good mix. It's it's because you can directly influence betting markets. Because one of the big things about Skybet is that you can take bets on football transfers. And the guys that are reporting football transfers are the same guys that own a betting company. It's it's as as Cam puts in this one, it's end to end control, and that is potentially really dangerous. And that is why I raised an eye. Stop betting was first introduced by the guys. Guys didn't know the guys that uh, own Autosports, basically the motorsport group, and one Zach Brown. Um, so yeah. I raised an eyebrow profusely when that was a thing, and now we're seeing them expand into the British Superbike Championship. Um, and yeah, like I'm not comfortable with media companies um, running betting and taking money off people where on markets they can directly influence via their media propaganda and whatnot. It's 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 it's, it's iffy at best. Like I like I remember my brother fell for the con a couple of years ago when Paul Pogba went to Manchester United. He betted against it because Ryan's a event. My brother Ryan's a Juventus fan um, as well as a United fan, which is a toxic mix. But hey, that's the that, that's the way he is sometimes. And it's the same deal here, and it is uh, potentially a enormous fucking conflict of interest. But you know, we'll have to see how it goes. I mean, it's only a betting point. I mean, that's the way sports is going now. Where, like, like not to get too side noted here or get to get too off the path, but it's becoming a thing where betting companies are now putting their names on more and more sports events. Every snooker major you can think of is backed by a betting company like the Bet Fred World Championship um, for or the, uh, the Bet Victor English Open that's starting this weekend. William Hill has every Anthony Joshua fight on lock. They have the William Hill Darts World Championship in December. That's their big one. Every darts major you can think of is, is sponsored by a, a bookies. Um, and it goes on and on and on. Like half the Premier League have, have got betting money coming in as either a shirt sponsor or a stadium. Oh, I, I, I looked at this um, mm. when, we, when it was discussed on Motorsport 101 before. If you go down into the Championship, the league which my team, Hull City, are currently playing in next season, they're about mm. to be relegated out of it. Um, they, oh, God. They, um, I, think I, can, I think I counted 20 of the 24 teams in that division are sponsored by either a betting or gambling organisation. <laughs> It's, right, it's like twenty of them, like eighty percent of the of the teams in that league are sponsored. Like it's it is worrying how sport is so so how to such a great extent is propped up by betting and gambling money. Um, easy money, but yeah, easy money exactly, and um, and and, and they continue to play on that. But yeah, British Superbikes have now joined in the fun. Yes, as AJ quite rightly points out, uh, my team are likely to be in the same division as division as his next year. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see. I'll see you at Wimbledon, AJ. Um, but um, but yeah, um, pit stop betting have become an official partner now of the British Superbike Championships, and uh, yeah, we can't see any uh, any problems likely to uh, manifest themselves from that. Never, uh, not at all. Uh, well, this weekend um, sees uh, the British Superbike Championship finale. Of course, it takes place at Brands this weekend. Um, and whatever betting app you use, you'll be able to get pretty short odds on Leon Haslam winning the title this weekend because he only needs really? 14 points um, to win the championship. He heads into it um, with a an enormous lead over JD Singh, 61 points, uh, and he would have the tiebreaker of most wins, even if Haslam, uh, sorry, even if Dixon does the triple this weekend. It's essentially the coronation uh, of Leon Haslam, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't feel like I'm. Uh, 
you know, tempting fate by saying that because I think even if Haslam has the, all the bad luck going his way, I can't see Dixon winning all three. Yeah, we'll play that next week if it all goes wrong. Um, <laughs> but um, but in many ways, Dre, he deserves this moment because Leon Haslam has had a long career um, in, in motorcycle racing. He's been a credit to himself, a credit to his sport. He's been a runner-up in the World Championship, let alone the British Championship. Um, yep. Of course, he had everything go wrong for him at this time last year. He deserves this moment to to take it all in and to go into a final round where he's likely to be crowned at the end of it as the champion, but also to enjoy the moment and ride without any pressure because that's essentially what he's got, hasn't he? Exactly. I mean, it's it's if he's, he only needs his 14, 14 points, a podium at any point would have said even if he that, doesn't yeah, get that. 14 points if Dixon wins all three. Yeah, that's that's assuming Dixon trebles, which is about as likely as rocking shit. Um, so, yeah, like it's it, it is it really is Haslam's coronation. Please, for the love of God, make sure he wins it. Like, I, I, my, I, my heart would break if if by some some freakish circumstance Haslam doesn't win the championship. Um, my heart would shatter into a million pieces. Uh, West London needs needs a major champion, so yeah. let's bring it. So bring it home, Leon Haslam. God damn it! And I, again, as you say, I, I do really hope he brings it home. I hope he can just go out there, enjoy it. And again, this is a guy that has been a perennial, fantastic bike rider for over a decade. Um, and you know, he, he has a riding school. He he you know, he doesn't he has an important role in 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 British bike racing and in, in a, a passionate connector fans and motorsport uh, and in, in in this country. So it would be a wonderful feel good win for Leon Hasm if he can finally win a major championship. Um, he's one of the real good guys in motorsport, and he's given a lot back to the sport as well um you know he, he's been one of the better superbike riders of this era and it, it would be lovely to see him finally win a, a major title that he absolutely deserves he's been phenomenal all season long he has been the class of the field he's had an answer for everyone and everything that the series has thrown at him this year and it's been a pretty crazy year to say the least mm. in british superbikes with the rise of dixon bradley raby and up and down shaky's injury um a, shake, a showdown that was all over the place multiple riders being in the mix it's been it's been a topsy-turvy year but it, haslam has been the cream of the crop in every department he's dominated this championship and i i i hope he goes out enjoys it and just celebrates the moment because he's been phenomenal he has one thing we do know is that the champion um, will be departing the series so either Moto2 or the World Superbike Championship will have their British Superbike champion within their midst next year um, but yeah it's Haslam versus Dixon for the British Superbike Championship this weekend one of those two will take the title and uh, dump it in their fridge CM Punk style on the way out uh, of BSB this weekend both Haslam and Dixon are departing the class um, at the end of this weekend, one of them will go out as champion. And uh, yeah, just to uh, just spell it out for you, just to um, give you uh, the scale of the task facing Dixon. Um, if Dixon is to uh, win the championship, he needs to, well, he needs to score a minimum of 62 points, which is the equivalent of, well, he has to win at least one race to have any chance. Three seconds doesn't do it. That's only 60 points. Yeah. Um, but if Dixon wins all three, Haslam needs the equivalent of 11th place in all three races or higher um, to win the championship. Um, if Haslam DNFs race one and Dixon wins, Dixon would then need to finish more than 11 points ahead of Haslam in race two to take it all the way down to the wire. 
um, in race one, which is where it's likeliest to be decided. If Dixon finishes, if Dixon wins race one, Haslam needs to finish third to wrap up the mm-hmm. title. Dixon finishes second, Haslam needs to finish sixth um, to wrap up the title in race two. If Dixon finishes third, Haslam must finish eleventh uh, in that first race of the weekend um, to wrap up the title. Um, if Jake Dixon fails to finish in the top four in race one, then the title is over, even if Leon Haslam is sat in a hospital bed somewhere, um, which if his uh, previous history of brand hatches like, is anything to go by, that's probably where it's going to end up. Um, oh, so, uh, so fingers crossed that's not the case. Um, Cam's already in the Discord chat giving Dre ideas for next week's episode title by saying it's coming. No. It's coming. No. Um, we are not doing this. Um, who's, uh, who's of course as Dre's mentioned is from a very very similar part of the world to him um, but that's yes. to come this weekend as well as that uh, bad news if you're Matt Roberts and you're having to broadcast for hours on end in uh, in the Brands Hatch paddock because World Superbikes is in a very different part of the world they're in Argentina this weekend uh, which means Woo. that once the British Superbikes are finished on Sunday the sun is set on Brands Hatch they'll be racing getting underway um, in Argentina at the new circuit in San Juan El Villacom uh, it's a spectacular setting if you've seen any of the photos on social media of the circuit and it looks like oh, yeah. a great circuit to ride on as well judging by the layout and the undulations that it has um, as well um, so it looks like Argentina's got two great racetracks to go with the uh, Tevastoria Hondo circuit that MotoGP races at they've now got another one um, in San Juan um, impossible to know what's going to happen well actually I say it's impossible to know what's going to happen Jonathan Ray's probably going to win both races but it's impossible to know <laughs> what's going to happen in terms of the form going because we've never seen any racing go around there um, but I-, I guess Dre what we should talk about going to this weekend is the World Super Sport Series because of course the Superbike class has already been wrapped up the Super Sport Championship could be wrapped up um, this weekend it- it's it's all to all intents and purposes now a two way battle um, between Sandro Cortese and Jules Clozel although Randy Krumenacker is still mathematically uh, in contention he's probably got to win this weekend to give himself a hope um, of challenging for the title at the finale um, in Qatar. Just to give you the points as they run at the moment, Cortese has 169, 11 ahead of Cluzel. Uh, Krumenacker is on 140, so he's 29 back. So if Krumenacker wins this weekend, he would ensure we have a three-way finale um, at the mm-hmm. final round um, in Qatar. Um, but really, Cortese, with an eight, with an 11-point lead, he needs to win this weekend um, with Jules Cluzel outside the top four um, to win the title uh, stranger things have happened, especially in World Super Sport. But really, what we're hoping for this weekend, with all due respect to Cortese, is a Cluzel win to set us up for a grandstand finish in Qatar, aren't we? We are rebuilding the Great Wall of Cluzel for one weekend only. I Come need on, a. Come on, Jules, please. We're totally a buy this yeah. show, honest. Um, no, not in the fucking slightest. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go, Cluzel! Yeah. Forever the bridesmaid of World Super Sport. <laughs> Please, Clazelle, please rebuild the wall. Um, yeah, yeah, don't I'm, don't, I'm, don't don't go to that party, Wells. That's shouting, build that wall. It's uh, it's not even <laughs> that well. Um, but uh, but no, Clazelle, he's eleven points behind Sandro Cortese. Um, as I mentioned, Krumenacker is still just about in contention. He's twenty nine off the lead. Um, Caracasulo is thirty seven off the lead, so he's just he's pretty much out of it. Even if he wins this weekend, he's probably going to be out of it. Um, but it is going to be an interesting weekend with World Superbikes and Supersport uh, both in action this weekend. What we do know is that when they go to uh, El Villacom for the second time next year, they'll be racing three times in World Superbikes um, and possibly twice in Supersport. That's not uh, been confirmed yet, but it has been confirmed, Dre, that in World Superbikes next year, we will go from two to three races per weekend with the addition of a sprint race on the Sunday morning to go with the races we already have on a Saturday afternoon and a Sunday afternoon. 
Um, bad news for, for all of us in the UK when we uh, set our alarms for the opening weekend in Phillip Island at the start of next year where we've got to uh, you know get up for three races as opposed to two. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, first of all, what do you make of this? I mean, a, a sprint race, first of all. So it's not going to be the same as the uh, race that we already have on a Sunday where you know it's, it's over full distance. This is going to be over a shorter distance, um, hence the term sprint race. But am I, am I right to be slightly concerned and slightly confused by the lack of detail in this announcement from world superbike today i think that's a fair assumption i mean it looks like, like they've sure themselves how this is going to work you'd think if you were going to announce a dramatic change to the race format um a format of a race weekend you would have the pan fully fleshed out in place so fans could wrap their head around it from now because remember we're not going to be a million miles away from fans buying tickets for next year's races well according to greg Uh, haynes they're going to be announcing the calendar on the qatar weekend which is two weeks from now right so as soon as that happens you're gonna have fans wanting to buy tickets for those races but they're not gonna have flights of course, and they're not going to have a concrete plan fleshed out for how these race weekends are going to be formatted. Uh, they're still going to be wondering, okay, we now have a third weekend. Okay, they've confirmed that there's going to be three races in a weekend. They've confirmed that the Saturday, the Sunday morning will have a quote-unquote sprint race. Um, so I assume a shorter-distance superbike race. We have no idea how long that race is going to be yet. They're saying it's going to be a Sunday 11 a.m. slot. Um, which makes sense, but so the BSG, again, the superbike race is essentially going to bookend the day. Um, exactly in, in 2019 on Sunday with a, a sprint race to start the day. Then you'll have your Super Sport and Super Sport 300 races, and then you'll have your third superbike race of the weekend. What it means is that we're essentially going to have 39 races um, in the 2019 Lord. World Superbike Championship. So uh, even if Jonathan Ray does set a new points record uh, at the end of the season, it's not going to last very long. Uh, we still no. get broken again next year, um, but. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to go on too big a rant here, but I feel it's almost unavoidable. For me, this is this just resembles everything that's wrong at the minute with World Superbikes in that all of their rule changes are reactive. All of yeah, their all of their rule changes, all of their rule changes are uh, poorly thought out. Um, because I'm not saying this is necessarily going to be a bad thing. This sprint race might be great, but we don't know whether we don't know where the reverse grid's going to factor into this. Whether the reverse grid is going to be for the sprint race or whether it's going to be for race three, um, we don't know. If there's if there's going to be a third race, as uh, as AJ will know from watching British touring cars, you need to then come up with a way of deciding the grid for the extra race. So unless you have an extra Super Bowl session, how do you decide the grid for the extra race you're adding in? Do you go by race results? Do you go by fastest laps? What do you do? Have they even thought of that yet? I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, but it's, again, this is why I think it's reactive. It's We've already had this survey earlier this year where they were trying to discover what the fans wanted out of World Superbikes. It's almost like they've just had the results back from that and the fans said in the, in the survey, we'd like an extra sprint race. All right, well, let's put a sprint race thing in then. Um, and it's a case of, well, they've discovered that attendance is, obviously circuits will have told them that you know, attendances on Sundays are down and you know, because fans right. don't want to come on a Sunday because there's only one Super race as opposed to two. So it's almost like they've just taken that feedback on board and just without even thinking about it, just thought, I know, let's add an extra Superbike race then. And it, it's, it's, like, it's like they're just reacting to, to, to feedback and they're reacting to what they perceive to be the problems with their series without actually putting the, the correct amount of thought into it to make sure that this is properly executed. Because I'm still, I still don't think necessarily that the reverse grid that we have in place was 
correctly executed because that just confused the fans to high hell. Exactly. Like I've mentioned it time and time again. It opened Pandora's box with the reverse grid rules two years ago because they were clearly tired of Kawasaki and more specifically Jonathan Ray dominance. This is not a moving reaction to that. This is obviously a case to give or in their eyes, to try and give bike fans more value for their money on the ticket. But the thing is, we don't know how promoters are going to respond to that. Are promoters now going to go, well, we're giving more races away, then hey, we can, we can whack another £50 on our tickets, which and, is another and I don't, thing. That... And I don't see, once you go to three races, I don't see how you can ever go back to two again. Because once you yeah, go back that... to two, promoters and fans will say, well, oh, I'm not certainly not going to go now because there's one less race to watch. And they're going to lower their prices in response to it. They're not going to. They're not going to lower their prices in response to that. Now, now they've jacked them up. They're not going to bring them back down again. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a messy one. I again, I'd have thought if I was going to go out there with a radical change to the way your calendar is going to work and how your season is going to play out, I'd have fleshed out a full plan first before going in balls deep with this whole idea about oh yeah. We're going to have three races a weekend. Well, what's the third race? How's it going to play out? What's the context? Um, how are you going to set the grids? Uh, we'll figure that out later. Um, that's not good enough. Yeah, like, have, you, have, like, have, they, have they let Pirelli know on this? Because Pirelli going to have to bring more tyres to a weekend. You yeah. Know, it's, the it's, riders are at greater risk of getting injured. You know, The penalty of missing around through injury is much higher now. You know, This has so many knock-on effects that I just don't think they've considered. No, they clearly haven't, and which I think is why they've announced it now. And then, they, well, we'll flesh out the plan later, basically. And I'm interested to see how Dorna goes about it going forward because it it just strikes me as a move they've not fully fleshed out and one that they've not really thought through. And now the, the, it seems like it's a nice tall glass of we'll just figure this out later, basically. And um, we'll have to wait and see how how they flesh this out, but. It, it was an eyebrow raiser, and I'm not sure, for me, from a personal standpoint, I'm not sure what the gain is from this at the moment. I mean, it's not a, a competition problem that they're going over. They're obviously trying to make the make the weekend more valuable for race fans, especially given the European Superstock 1000 is no more. They're, and, and as we've both said on this show, we think two races for Supersport and Supersport 300 is, is the way to go to fill the gap up. Um, so I, I get, I, I get the logical reasons for it, but this series more and more to me just seems like Dorna's plaything. It just seems like their social experiment to tweak and to tweak and bend and, you know, manipulate the series to f throw in a lot of shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. It, it, I, it's, I think, I think we both summed it up when we were discussing the survey a couple of years and uh, weeks ago, and we, 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 we mentioned the question about, the name of the series what do you associate as the name of the series this is a this is a championship with an identity problem um yes this is, this is a it, doesn't, it doesn't know what it wants to be this is a championship exactly this is a championship that doesn't know where, what it wants to be and what direction it wants to go in um and you know jonathan ray's dominance is almost um incidental to this because you know he he's he's winning every week jonathan ray might well just dominate again next year but it's, instead he's going to dominate you know 33 percent more often um because because there's one extra race next year um and as I say, I'm not saying that a sprint race won't be entertaining. Um, I'm not saying that it's not going to produce great racing, but I don't think it solves the problems that they're looking to solve. It, as I say, it's simply, it's just a sort of like a band-aid on the problem of 
poor attendances. It's like, well, oh, we'll just give them an extra race on the Sunday then. That'll make people turn up. Well, no, because you've got other problems within your championship that make it unappealing to people. Um, right. And you, and you need to solve those first. Then if you if you get that house in order and you solve the general problems that World Superbikes has, people will turn up and watch two races per weekend. You don't need the third race. Um, no. So, so again, it's, it's a reactionary problem that doesn't necessarily address the actual issue and I don't think will ultimately... Um, solve the problem. Um, but that's mm. for next year. World Superbikes is likely to run three races. Well, it is going to run three races per weekend, but we don't quite yet know um, what kind of uh, format that is going to be within. But uh, yeah, you're all ready for a 39-race World Superbike Championship next year because that's what you're getting um, in, in 2019. Uh, that brings us to the end of uh, episode 81 uh, of Bike Live here on Motorsport 1. And we'll be back next week, uh, as always, to review the British, the British Superbike Championship finale. And we will be able to... Uh, uh, lavish praise on the new champion uh, whether it's Jake Dixon or Leon Haslam we'll also review the first ever World Superbike Round to take place in Argentina at El Villacum in San Juan this weekend uh, when we certainly hope that is an exciting <laughs> spectacle before then of course um, we have episode 165 of Motorsport 101 a tricky one in some respects because none of the big three are racing of course IndyCar has finished Formula E is yet to start up again uh, for the new season and Formula 1 is having one of its very few weeks off that it has um, before the end of this season they're back um, the weekend after this um, with the uh, with the American Grand Prix as Lewis Hamilton goes for his fifth world title um, but that's not to say that there isn't plenty to talk about Dre because of course the uh, the newest uh, potential championship that's going to be launching in motorsport uh, in the near future is likely to dominate the agenda yes um, this will most likely special edition of the show as cam in the background shouts petit le mans yes we know it's on forgive us um but um no this will most likely be a special edition of the show next week we didn't really have anything planned for this week until tuesday happened with the announcement of the w series the new up up and coming uh, 20 million pound invested new racing series trying to find um, new female talent in motorsports um, with you know a guaranteed prize pool and prize money and to say it's divided people in the motorsport community would be an understatement to say the least yeah, I've got to say segregated no 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 um, um, but uh, yeah it's it's a tricky one it's a tricky one that requires a lot of internal discussion. And, you know, a lot of people have, have, have spitballed their takes on this um, um, from from racing drivers in the female space like Pippa Mann and Sophia Flores and, and, and whatnot to pundits like Buxton. Very outspoken. Yeah, Pippa Mann was, was, was seething with disappointment about this one. Like, she was seething with rage on that one. Sophia Flush was very very eloquent in breaking down the problems of that series in general from a from a financial and logistical south um, standpoint fingers crossed i can't confirm this just yet i i think we're gonna try and get hazel back on for for next week's show because there's very few female voices on this better and let's be real here i don't think you guys really want to hear me rj and king three men talk about a, a female motorsport series it would be kind of tone deaf to do that so stay tuned follow our social media for more on that as we get it we're still trying to dot some of the i's and cross all the t's on the logistics of it but episode 165 next week a special on the w series it's bound to be interesting to say the least 
It is. And actually, um, to before all of you motorsport hipsters shout out, yeah, we do know there are uh, things on, like the six hours of Fuji in WEC. And, uh, of course, the Formula 3 Euro uh, Series Championship Decider. Um, yeah. So we could have another championship Mick, for Schumacher Mick, to talk about Mick, um, Mick. by the time we come back um, on Motorsport 101 for episode 165. Mm. Uh, that's all to come on uh, next week's episode. And as I mentioned, episode 82 um episode 83 should i say by like this is episode 82 uh, episode 83 coming next week as we review the argentine world super right round and the brand's psp triple header to decide the champion uh, between leon haslam and jake dixon the places you can get in touch with us between now and then and as dre mentioned the uh, places you can find all the information on next week's episode of m101 uh, on facebook facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101 the best place to find us is on twitter at motorsport underscore 101 um, our YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport101 and our website is motorsport101.com. Our Patreon page, if you'd like to back us financially and early access to both our weekly shows, is patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. If you back us at the $5 tier, you get early access to both weekly podcasts. Back us at the $10 tier and you can listen in live. And a huge thank you to all of you that have done so uh, on this Thursday evening. Uh, we will be back next week, as I mentioned, to uh, review a weekend of Superbikes. But this weekend... Um, saw Mark Marquez as the number one TIE fighter at Boroughan last weekend as he took another step towards the world title. We will see you again next week.